Sonic Boom! Hello everybody, welcome to twitch.tv slash jchenzor here on the Chenzor Dynasty for another episode of OK Sonic Boomer where I am joined by none other than uh, Mr. Corey Bell here to ask me all the questions about old school FGC so we can just talk about and ramble about all the fun, interesting stories of old school fighting game community. Hi, Corey. How you doing? <laughs> doing great. Doing great. It's another Monday. Um, nice and warm here in San Diego. Oh, yeah. Just, uh, looking forward to this conversation because uh, there's, there's been some stuff that's been going on since that last time we talked. Oh, okay. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> All right. Yeah, so in case you guys are unaware of what OK Sonic Boomer is, it's, you know, just a stream that I've been wanting to talk about as much old school FGC stuff as possible. Never sure which, where, what to talk about. And so I'm leaving that up to Corey. Corey gets to ask me whatever he wants. And so I get to talk about whatever I want. <clears throat> he can even ask about non-FGC stuff if he really wanted to. So <laughs> You're giving me too much power. Too much power. <laughs> I don't know if you want to do that. <clears throat> So, um, we, we talked about a few topics last week. Um, we ended up talking a bit about Tomo Ohira. Uh, we talked about Easy Mode Ken and Alpha, <laughs> one, Alpha 1, which is hilarious. Yes. Uh -huh. And then also getting to know about how Tomo um, what, what, advertised for their tournaments that, that early on was you had to literally get print out flyers and... <laughs> Go to all the look up all the arcades in like the yellow pages, the white pages, and go to those arcades. Hope they have a scene. Hope they have a Street Fighter scene, whatever, and just mm -hmm. hand out flyers saying, "Hey, we're having this tournament. Come by." Yeah, and keep in mind too. I mean, we kind of talked about this after the stream ended uh, last week a little bit, but I mean, this is not even like any sort of flyers in any sort of official capacity. This is literally a black and white flyer that I think that they just took to a you know, a, a copy machine, copied a bunch of them, cut them in half, and just like, <laughs> so even if I do find it, it's nothing fancy, there's like no graphics on it, because, you know, I don't even know, if, I don't even know if Photoshop was around at that time. <laughs> you know? Probably not, you know what, out of curiosity, I, I want to know how old Photoshop is. Yeah, I know. Like, uh, 1990, 19, oh, older than I thought. Okay, okay, so yeah, then it was... Okay, well, actually, yeah, so it was around at that time, but obviously very, very, um, probably not exactly the most uh, robust of an application at that time. But, it's yeah. probably very niche. You probably need to be an expert to use it, <laughs> if I had to make a guess. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, if I do find it, like I said, I'm pretty sure that it's at my parents' house. And uh, once the quarantine is over, next time I go visit, I'll try to make sure to see if I can find it. And if I can, then yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll try to show it on stream. And, you know, despite it being a super ghetto flyer, it'd probably be worth laminating and preserving anyway, you know. Oh, absolutely. You know, at least frame it or something or, mm -hmm. you know, just keep it somewhere. Who knows? It, exactly. it, I think that's valuable piece of FGC history. Yeah. And speaking of valuable piece of FGC history. Uh -oh. Okay. <laughs> so on Twitter a few days ago... <laughs> I saw Justin Wong's post talking to you mm -hmm. about, hey, when are we getting a O to the three hit combo follow up to your 
video you made in 2004, Ode to the Two-Hit Comics. Yes. <laughs> and I had heard of that video before. Uh-huh. I had never seen it. That's so, crazy. Okay. I was reminded by that tweet, you know, hey, I should go check that video out. And I was blown away. <laughs> I was absolutely blown away because that is another, like, important part of our history. Yeah. It's interesting about that video because... You know, we were all making combo videos around that time, and combo videos were literally just, hey, here's all the combos put in a row and displayed. And it was a tragic Ben Curitan who started trying to turn combo videos into something more fancy, and he made this really awesome Sarah Bryant combo video for Virtua Fighter. And um, after I saw that, I was like, Man, I'm inspired to do something more. And so I wanted to do a combo video that was like a music video more than a combo video. And uh, I for it was Ed Ma that we were joking about making two hit a, a two-hit combo video. You know, just showing like degenerate combos and everything like that. And I was like, well, if they're all two hits and short, that'd be perfect for a music video type thing because you're not a slave to the length of the combos. And so I brought it up to Madge, uh, Majestros, uh, AKA Art, um, and um, he just ran with it. Like, I told him about it, we joked about it. I don't know if I was ever gonna do it, but then all of a sudden he just showed up one morning and was like, here's a bunch of two hit combos that I made for CVS2. And I was like, what the hell? And then, not only that, but he made like quality combos. Like, I was wanting to do stuff like, Dudley Crouch Roundhouse, you know, in Third Strike, and then, you know, you can juggle with Corkscrew Blow, and then I was uh -huh. gonna time it wrong so it hit him once, and then it would fall, like, it was supposed to be, like, a, a, a joke, like, a, nothing but botched combos here and that there. That only lead to, that only end up in two-hit combos. Yeah, yeah, but then he started, like, making actual high-quality combos, and then from there, yeah, it just kind of exploded, and, uh, uh, Sigma Nuts to in Infinite Spark. Uh, in the chat, thank you for the subscription. And there you go. <laughs> oh man. Oh yeah, I'll, that's true. Have you seen my Capcom Fighting Jam combo video, Corey? No. Okay. I didn't know it existed. Okay, one day you're gonna have to look that up. Then one day you're gonna have to look that up, <clears throat> or I can play it here on the stream later. But yeah, I mean, uh, Madge just started making all these ridiculous two-hit combos, and so I was like, all right. And I just started trying to edit it together. And, you know, one of the things I wanted to do was really pick an eclectic set of music that was not something that you would expect to hear in combo videos. During that time, I don't know if people remember, combo videos were full of, like, Linkin Park and, <laughs> you know, and, you know, just, like, techno music and stuff. So I wanted to do stuff that was really different. Um... I mean, I have at least three different jazz pieces in there. And then uh, the, the one song at the end with the, the guitar was The Case by Monopuff, which is a, a side band of one of the They Might Be Giants guys because I was just a huge fan of They Might Be Giants. Yeah, so I, I just like picked all these random songs and then I was like, all right, let's go ahead and do this. And I started making this combo video while I had my regular job, and um, it took me two years to make. <laughs> and the best part about it was, it was uh, right before Evo 2004, I think it was, or that, you know, it debuted at Evo. And I was terrified because I was like, this is going to be 
uh, a 20 minute combo video. Nobody's had a 20 minute combo video before and they're gonna debut this at Evo and people are just gonna sit here and watch a combo video for like 20 minutes. I was like, is this even gonna work? But Wizard was like, if you finish it by this date, I will show it at Evo. So I actually took a week off vacation from work. <laughs> Just to do work on the video. Just to work on the video to get it done by Evo. And, uh, you know, I managed to do it and it debuted at Evo. And that weekend was a very, very odd weekend as well. Uh, without getting into too much details about my own personal history uh, of what, what happened that weekend. But I almost didn't make it to Evo on Sunday at all when it was going to be debuted. Um uh, Madge, one of the guys who helped me make the video, and another player named uh, Gunter, uh, oh, David Dial, who goes by Gunter, who lives in Japan right now. He does all the CVS2 A-Groove combos and stuff like that. They showed up to my house and were like, we're taking you to Evo because you need to, you know, uh, you, you need some good spirits and stuff. And so they took me to Evo. The two-hit combo video debuted. People loved it. And then the Daigo parry happened. And so, you know, like, I was like, well, it's a good thing I went. Because if I didn't go, I would have missed the Daigo parry. Uh, and I would have been very, very sad. <laughs> That's actually crazy to think about, huh? That, that happened the same Evo. Yes. Mm -hmm. And in Two fact... historical events. And in fact, if you read Glenn Craven's The Game 2K, uh, he had a book about the 10-year anniversary of the Evo Moment 37. And uh, one of the chapters in there, one of the chapters, I think it was like the second chapter was dedicated to the two-hit combo video in there because it happened that weekend. That's awesome. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. Deadly Rave Neo in the chat mentions the Guilty Gear Accent Core video I did with Johnny. Uh, I did a Johnny combo video to the Go Johnny Go song, you know. By Chuck, Chuck Berry. Yeah, by Chuck Berry. And yeah, that was me playing Johnny in that video. So, that I, was, so that... as a youngin, I don't know a whole lot about FGC history before I got into the FGC. Obviously, that's kind of why we're doing the show. <laughs> right. Um, but I don't, I especially don't know about any of the history during the Dark Ages, so to speak. Mm -hmm. I don't know anything about that. So that's why, like, hearing about you know, the two-hit comma video, I, I mean, I know about Moment 37 because... Everyone knows. Right. That that's his. That's that, that's very famous. But I don't know anything besides that. But yeah. I do recall seeing combo videos where, yeah, it's like set to Lincoln Park and it's always like on like VHS quality because that was like probably the way you capture a lot of footage back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. It, Speaking it's... of which, how did you capture footage for your video? Uh, actually, so back then I had an old Dazzle DVC little capture device that took in S video, I think it was. And so, uh, that's, that's basically what I did. And Madge captured a bunch of, uh, footage as well. He did a lot of work on that thing. He captured so much. I mean, I did the editing myself. Uh, that was all purely me, but he helped capture so many of the combos. And I know that you saw the, the, the document that I wrote up with all of the notes. I did a director's commentary of the two hit combo video. And I think somewhere in there, I mentioned that we recorded over 500 two hit combos. And uh, in the end, about like 350 of them made it into the combo video, which is, that is nuts. kind of insane. 
<laughs> that is insane. That's yeah. so many combos. Yeah. And that means that's also so much more footage, potentially, mm -hmm. right? Unreleased. But so that's another mind blowing thing. Not only is the video so Oops. awesome, it's a time capsule as well, right? It, it tells you what, of all the fighting games at, around that age, 2004, um, and even a few years before that. Uh, your music choices I really like because it has a few of those songs like, yeah, I expect that kind of song to be there. And a few other ones are like, wow, you put that song in. That's awesome. <laughs> you yeah. went through a bunch of different genres and I really like that. Uh, when you had the Mosley Lee Cantina music, I died. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of my best friends is a big Star Wars fan. And I was like, do you feel like it would be like, like almost kind of disrespectful to use the song. He was like, nah, go for it. <laughs> and then uh, there was um, the uh, the fourth song that I used, which was the Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood from the Kill Bill soundtrack. Like, it's <laughs> such a great song, but there's a lot of singing in that song. And I had to edit that song so much just to keep all the instrumentals and change it to the way that I wanted to do it and find a way to make it end like with a, without fading out and all this stuff like that. I mean, I edit a lot of those songs that even the first song that I did from the Chicago movie uh, soundtrack, uh, there's one part where the song gets very slow and quiet and I edited that part out. And so I had to, I did a lot of like extra work uh doing all this stuff dude it was it was pretty crazy <laughs> two years <That's>, like i said <laughs> it's 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 another cool part that it's edited very well mm. like not 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 to toot your horn or anything like it's it's edited very well and i was talking to i don't remember who it was maybe i was talking to Olaf about it like it's edited very well for its time and it it is telling of like when it was made that's not a bad thing for me it's a time capsule right like, yeah, hey, yeah, yeah this is what the video editing footage is uh, uh software was like back in the time right. uh and the amount of work you put into it i i really liked it i mean, I, I really enjoyed it the crazy thing about that combo video too is that i mean i learned how to use adobe after effects making that combo video like really i literally yeah. downloaded that program because i had all my combo videos had just been you know like something equivalent of Windows Movie Maker of just like splicing things together and putting my own audio track. And I was like, I wanna learn how to do real editing. And so I actually, I, well, uh, I obtained a copy of Adobe After Effects. Uh, you obtained a copy, got Obtained it. a copy. And then I, yeah, I just learned how to use it from that point forward. And um, most of those effects in that video were all manually created. Like I did not use barely any of the standard transitions and stuff like that, that were built into the application or anything like that. I just kind of tried to do everything manually and, um, it was so much fun. And that's kind of why I ended up moving towards the area of making all the intros and trailers for Evo as well. You know, I used to make all the DVD trailers and then I eventually started doing all the um, the intros for, uh, you know, the games before uh, Emmy Award winning Seth Mussey took over, you know, <laughs> uh, 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 for, for the wow. intros, you know. <laughs> but, but, but see, that's also telling of the the change in the times, right? Yeah. It, it It's... Um... It, it definitely felt like it was more of a grassroots community. It, it was more of a grassroots community. Mm -hmm. 
back then where you would just have a dedicated fan or dedicated member of the community just be like, I'm going to make this thing just because. Right. Yeah. And, and that was the thing is at one point in time, I had even thought about just going hardcore into editing and just learning how, because I mean, the one thing is when I made the two hit combo video, the, the whole point of making the two hit combo video was to try to change the way people made combo videos at that point, because I really wanted to turn it into its own little art, art form, you know, in terms of doing something more than just displaying the combos. And, you know, it did work because, uh, you know, uh, guys like Desk came around and started making really, I mean, he came out of nowhere and he had this amazing combo video that I saw and I was like, hey, Desk, before you release this, can we debut it at Evo? And I talked to Wizard about it and I got like one of his first combo videos ever made to be de debuted at Evo. And that's when uh, Evo started really going on this streak of debuting combo videos there. Madge would make combo videos for Evo and they would do like uh, the Guile combo video that he made, uh, the Ryu combo video that he made, which might be, in my opinion, the best combo video ever made, which is uh, Madge's Ryu's Through the Ages combo video. Um, but then they also did like the the fireball, the projectile exhibition combo video. They've done, like there've been so many combo videos they used to play uh, that 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 they used to display, you know, to debut at Evo, and it was such a cool thing back then. And it's it's interesting now because you know going into the little history about the combo videos is that YouTube kind of killed the combo video um, when YouTube first started coming out because. We made these combo videos and they were just, you know, Shoryuken had to host him or some person on some site had to host it and everything like that. Once uh -huh. you, YouTube came around, when it first started, it wasn't about the length of time people spent on your channel that helped earn like money and stuff. It was views. It was just views. Uh -huh. And so when YouTube first started, it was flawed in that way in that... If I want if a new game came out and I wanted to make a combo video for it and I created 20 combos and I edited them all together in this awesome format and then I put it on YouTube people would be like, "Oh, hey, look, here's this 10-minute long video." Meh, and they wouldn't watch it. And you would spend all this time working on it, you would get no views on it, and even if they did view it, it would be one view for a 10 minute video. Whereas if I took all 15 or 20 of those combos and just uploaded them separately as their own video, everybody would watch them quickly and they would watch 20 different clips giving you 20 views, which was actually more useful than having one. And so YouTube kind of killed the combo video because it made it so that the effort that you put into the video didn't matter. I mean, you look at the two-hit combo video, I mean, obviously it's older now, but even on Madge's uh, channel, the Sonic Hurricane channel, it's got like 50,000 views on there, right? I mean, uh. like, for a video that's like 10 years old, 50,000 views is like nothing, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. It's yeah. just... That's actually one thing I was also thinking about is that video also shows how much fighting games have changed um like how how different the modern fighting game is in regards <laughs> to combo systems i feel like 
uh, most of the mainstream fighting games, like the big, the big titles, uh, or at least Street Fighter, isn't as combo centric anymore. It's at least not as freeform to let you mm-hmm. do these crazy mm-hmm. combos. <laughs> Excuse me. Thank you. Was um, like, like you know, you could, you could in the older games, um, you could play any of the alphas, and those all had a very variable combo system. Also because a, uh, not a group, but custom combos. Yeah, right? yeah. Uh, and then all CVS two. Oh, all, all, all of Sevius 2 had a lot of variety, also because of A-Groove. Yeah. Um, well, not even Mark's... just A-Groove as well. By the way, Sigma Nuts to Investigation Cone in the chat. Thank you for the subscription. Um, Thank you so much. <clears throat> uh, dude, Sevius 2 wasn't even just the A-Groove. The way Sevius 2 worked, because it had to figure out how to integrate so many different systems, like, C, like the C-Groove... Its specialty was canceling level two super combos into a special move. And when you did that, it unlocked a free juggle, you know. And I mean, again, you can read the CVS2 combo fact that I wrote. And I describe all these systems in here. Like, there's so many different ways that they enabled all the juggles in the game and how everything works. Like, they figured out how to make super fireballs not juggle against opponents, but juggle if it hit them out of the air. So basically the, 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 the super fire, like a super fireball would have, let's say six hits inside of it, but uh-huh. only the first hit was available at the start. And the first hit has no juggle potential. So let's say I light uppercut somebody out of the air and I land and I could super, they would fall through the super firewall because the first hit had no juggle potential. But the later hits all had juggle potential. So if you landed on a super fireball, the first hit that didn't have juggle potential would hit you, but then it would get to the second hit, and that one had juggle potential. So now you could get juggled by the super fireball. So Ah, okay. So if you landed on it, you would eat the whole thing. But if I tried to do something like knock you up into the air and then tried to super fireball you, unless it was a free juggle state, which can happen like with the level two CVS uh, C groove cancels. Uh, if oh. you did, um, you know, just uh, like, like, like I said, jab uppercut into super, this, it would go through them. So that's why actually when you watch Madge's video, he sets up a bunch of combos where he intentionally eats the first hit of the super fireball with another fireball on the screen so it gets to the second hit so that it can start juggling in situations where it wasn't supposed to. Like, mm. like he had that one combo where uh, he throws uh, Evil Ryu's super fireball and it trades with Akuma's super fireball and he did it just right so that it ate every hit except one hit of Ryu's Super Fireball, so he could uppercut him out of the air and have him fall on that last hit of the Super Fireball, you know? And it was so complicated. There was even some time-based juggles in which uh, after certain moves hit, like, uh, I think it's like Haumaru's heavy uppercut, Rugal's heavy uppercut, that it would hit you out of the air and the second hit would juggle every time. But... That was a time-based thing. They implemented a system by which if you got hit by a move, you could be juggled for free, but only for a short few frames. Mm. 
And so what you would do instead is you would trade with the first hit of the uppercut and then you could get like a different juggle that wasn't supposed to juggle after the uppercut. And, you know, it's just like... Because they're recovering sooner, so to speak, yeah. Yeah, there's so many different ways. Yeah, I know, right? Like trying to explain it is complex. It, it does sound like a Chris Who's uh, DHD glitch explanation. <laughs> Dude, so like I... I... It's really funny because I love learning about, like, how convoluted or complicated older fighting game systems are. Mm -hmm. um, especially, like, in, in this regard, uh, you know, how, how juggle works. Yeah. In every game, it's different. In the older games, you could have, like, eight, eight you know, like, ten different variables that affect, you know, mm -hmm. how, how your juggle works. And in most recent games, it's like, oh, this move puts you in juggle state, and these moves have juggle properties, or whatever, well, yada, yada, what's yada. What's interesting about... What's actually interesting about that, sorry to interrupt you, is that Street Fighter V actually uses largely the same juggle system that uh, Alpha and CVS2 and all that stuff used, and Street Fighter IV. They all actually use the very similar juggle system in which there's a juggle count and a juggle potential. The thing that they did, however, is they've tweaked it now because they have such an understanding of how their own juggle system works, they cheat a lot now. So, uh, for example, um, uh, Ryu Super Fireball in Street Fighter Four, his Ultra, you know, it um, would hit you, and then after it knocked you into the air, Ryu would recover in time to be able to juggle, but nothing would juggle afterwards. Unless you hit him out of the air with it, like as a juggle, then all of a sudden you could juggle them, you know. Basically, they programmed a lot of different things. So the, originally, the way that the, 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 the combo system works, and this is how it's been since Super Turbo-ish? No, since Alpha 1. This is how it works since Alpha 1. Uh, mm. Super Turbo is kind of the same, except there was only two numbers. There was only a 3 and a 6. A uh, 3 and a 5, I'm sorry. 3 and a 5 were the, were the two numbers. But in Alpha, they made it so that there, you could be any number. Every move could be assigned a juggle count, a juggle mm. potential. And then okay. there was an extra counter in the background for the juggle count. So if I got hit into the air by an uppercut and now I'm floating down, the juggle count is at zero. Or actually, I think it starts at one. I've always just talked about it starting at zero. But for example, a move would have the juggle potential of one. And as long as the juggle count was lower than that, then you would be able to juggle. Right? Mm -hmm. So for example, if I uppercutted somebody out of the air, I'll use my old... Uh, wording for it your juggle count would be at zero and i have this move that has a juggle potential of one so i try to hit him with it and it's like oh is one greater than zero yes okay it hits him now the juggle count is at one so if i tried to hit him with that move again it'll miss because one is no longer greater than zero but if i had a move with a juggle count of two then i could juggle you again if i had another move that had a juggle count of three i could keep popping you up and down over and over and over again and they did that in Street Fighter 4 as well. Street Fighter 4 largely used that same system as well, but they started cheating it because now certain moves, when they popped you up into the air, would just crank the juggle count to 999 or whatever the max is. Just max it out, yeah. yeah it, they would, it, it ends the combo. Yeah, they were just like, you know what? We don't want you to juggle after this, so boom, we're just jumping it all the way up there. And then certain moves like Dudley's uh, EX dash upper to make sure that the second hit always connected, the first hit on the dash upper actually doesn't increase the juggle count. 
So that's why there was those crazy smug combos where he would hit you with one hit of the dash upper and the second would miss and it would allow him to keep these combos going for a really long time because the juggle count would never increase. So they started tweaking moves to change how much they increased the juggle count, whereas in the old games it was just universal. If you got juggled, it got increased. And then they changed it in four, and now they in made f- exceptions and everything. Like yeah, that. And, yeah, and then in five, now it's just all that stuff still exists in the background. It's all still there, which is why Guile has certain ways to juggle, you know, with offensive heavy kick into flash kick and all these things like that. And you'll still see semblances of it, but they have so much control over it now, and they they've kind of understood their own juggle system to a T that they've just messed with it to the point where. You know, moves like Decapre, her ultra where she threw out the fireball. Uh-huh. Uh, when you actually dig oh. into the code, it turns out it just has max juggle potential. So in other words... Oh, so it always juggles. Yeah, so it'll always juggle forever. So if you put yourself on infinite... Uh, ultra, you ultra, just keep doing it. Yeah, you could just juggle forever. So that's basically how it worked. Like that... It's actually still the same juggle system in the core, but they've just figured out how to manipulate it so badly. And yes, and increase the combo count in the patch notes. That's what it actually means. Like one of the things that people have always said was like, oh, this Tatsu Tatsu puts you in a juggle state. That's actually not true. Any knockdown puts you in a juggle state. It has nothing to do with the move that knocks you down. Everything that's a knockdown puts you in a juggleable state. It's just dependent on the move itself, whether or not it can juggle afterwards. There are some moves that put you in a free juggle state, though, that does kind of count for that. But, you know, people be like, oh, Akuma's air tatsu puts you in a juggle state. No, that's not actually true. It's just a knockdown and uh, anything that can juggle will juggle afterwards. But yeah, if you actually look at the patch notes when they say increase the combo count, that usually means they've upped the juggle potential for certain moves so that you have the ability to allow things to juggle. Sometimes they even just make it so that it's hard-coded in there now. Um, That if Ryu cancels donkey kick into light tatsu it automatically drops the juggle count or whatever or this for sure gives them a free ju- you know they've just at this point in time they just tweak it and manipulate it to however they want to now so it's it's kind of there, weird there's, there's less variables so it's it's the, there is a positive and negative to this you know the positive is they have full control over mm-hmm. you know what ends up happening in their game the negative is there's generally less to explore because there's less accidental discoveries of like <laughs> even like useless things. I feel. Yeah. And yeah. Uh... which, which is, once again from a competitive perspective, I understand. But from a fun, casual, just adventurous mm-hmm. perspective, it's a little boring. Yeah, as a combo video maker, you're kind of sad. You you you've lost a lot of the creativity. Because, uh, you know, they Capcom knows, for example, like I think Lucia's uh, uppercut kick may have infinite juggle potential, but they purposely make it so when it hits the enemy, they fall re- kind of faster or make sure that the delay on her uppercut is long enough that you'll never be able to get anything afterwards. So they've kind of manually figured out a way to prevent infinite uppercut juggles, for example. But, you know, back in the previous games, most knockdowns followed the same knockdown arc, you know, so and then they just gave juggle potential to certain moves. So, yeah, 
when you made combo videos, you would find all sorts of crazy things. Look at my CVS one combo fact one of these days, not the CVS two combo fact. Take a look at my CVS one combo fact one of these days. And uh, I actually took the time to write the juggle potential. I figured out the juggle potential of almost every move in that game. And uh, because of that, I was able to create all sorts of really funky combos mathematically by like, oh, okay, this will juggle here and this. And like, I would try to create all sorts of crazy uh, juggles off of that. And um, yeah, it's you, you do lose a lot of that creativity in, in, in modern fighting games now, unfortunately. That is so cool. I mean, this is also, you know, the era before frame data and stuff was common knowledge mm -hmm. and maybe if you're lucky there was a japanese strategy guy that had frame data <laughs> in there for you but you actually wrote down the juggle potentials all the moves i don't even know if anyone like if any official group documented that yeah in cvs2 i didn't do it because my fact was already over 100 pages on word document and um it was it was too hard <laughs> I, honestly the fact that you wrote a 100 page doc for the for that is still amazing thank you you know thank you for writing all those facts because i still eventually come assemble upon them every once in a while like oh here's an f here's a fighting game i want to look into like oh it's written by james all right cool. <laughs> yeah the capcom versus snk2 was kind of like my magnum opus basically in terms of combo facts and uh i mean the amount of information in there that's useful even outside of just cvs2 like i have tips on how to do um to do super cancels and stuff like that in there like a whole bunch of different techniques on how to do that and that faq was just oh my god like the amount of work i put into there i think i talked about this in an older episode before but like if you look at the CVS2 page on uh, GameFAQs, like 139K Bucktooth's Iori Engroove Guide is the second biggest FAQ on CVS2. The biggest one is my systems guide, which is 626K. You know, <laughs> this thing is gigantic and there's just, there's so much in this FAQ. And, you know, shout outs to all the people who even helped me, uh, um, you know, proofread it and stuff like that, including uh, Cone in the chat, who actually helped me, like, proofread this whole entire thing at one point in time, so. Remind me to go uh, download that uh, FAQ later, just to make <laughs> sure, in, in case, you know, the internet ever goes down, or GameFQs ever goes down, that that's, that's kept, because that's important. That is I have it. History. I have it on my machine, so it's all good. It's all good. Uh, but here, here's a link for it right there I just put in the chat. Oh. Thank you so much. I'm going to actually read this later, so I'm just going to open it. So that's that. CVS1. Uh, I'm going to try to find CVS. I mean, that was CVS2. So they all CVS2, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to go look for CVS1 here. Uh, Capcom versus SNK Arcades guides, because like I said, that one I also have the whole uh, in-depth facts. Here we go. And see, look at that. Oh, this one's only 155k. Man, I was slacking. <laughs> Man, I remember going on Game of Cues all the time when I was a kid, reading up strategy guides and cheat codes forums. Mid-2000s, I used to do that a lot. <laughs> oh. Yeah, wow. if you actually look at this, there's like, yeah, I have all of the, uh, the, the, the juggle potentials here. 
for every character in here. Like I said, though, the interesting thing about it is the way that I had set it up was that, you know, you started at a zero and then you the first one brought it to one, etc. I think actually internally in the game, it actually starts at a one and then increases to two and, and, and or something like that. It's 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 not a greater than it's like an equal or greater than kind of system or something like that. But it was all just, you know, it was me just making it up. I had to figure out a way to logically make make sense out of it and uh i just kind of did it th my own way in in a sense once again james you uh you pioneered a lot <laughs> of like common the stuff that like people use in the fgc to this day including terminology mm -hmm. and also like I, I guess you could just say like metaphors or explanations yeah. for how certain systems work like you really pioneered a lot of that so uh, thank you for the uh, work you've done for the community <laughs> and thank you for putting that work to begin with like it's it's awesome it's I really mean, cool that's why i'm so mad about what happened with trip guard you know because that was a term that i helped create <laughs> and everybody uses it wrong now and i'm so mad about that but you know things like launcher things like you know flying screen in those games and all that stuff like that uh uh i did a lot of that stuff so uh i, I came up with a lot of those terms yeah yeah, dude. I like I said, I'll still occasionally go into like an old fighting game FAQ, and I'll actually get upset if they don't use your terminology, <laughs> which is like, it's like, what? What do you mean? What? What's quarter circle towards? What's quarter circle <laughs> away? What is this? Uh, Peter O six one one asks Magic series. I did not coin the term Magic series, but I do know who did. Uh, that was Tom Cannon. Tom Cannon actually coined the term Magic Series. He That's what he used to call it in X-Men Children of the Atom because everybody had different chain combo routes. And so to refer to it as like, oh, this character has this Magic Series. They have that Magic Series. And then eventually the Magic Series just kind of became generic of jab, short, strong, forward, fierce, roundhouse kind of thing. So, so question, do you, just because I didn't know that, Mm -hmm. uh, do you know why he called the magic series? No, I have no idea. <laughs> okay. He just called it curious. that. Oh. Yeah, it was that. And then also uh, in Alpha 1, Birdie's Super, where he jumped and grabbed you. You know, he kind of did the little hop and then grabbed you. Even uh -huh. level 1 had invincibility. So you could use it as an anti-air. So someone would jump at you and you would do it right before they're about to kick you. You would go through them and then they would land into your throw. That was known as the Tom Cannon because he was the one who kind of first was utilizing that technique and popularized it as well. So that was uh, Tom Cannon. Who, who, who <laughs> That was known as the Tom Cannon back then. <laughs> and see, yeah, Ponder Sleuth. You see, that's how I feel. The more I learn about FGC history and then learn like, oh, James kind of pioneered a lot of this. And people James know pioneered a lot of this. That's so like, this is crazy and it's awesome to me. Yep. And uh, as someone who likes likes my video game history, I find this fascinating. <laughs> so, and, so thank you. And it's um, interesting, too, because Nuticon asks about priority. You know, no one really we just use the term. Oh, this move has good priority. This move has good priority. Because for the longest of time, we didn't know how fighting games work. We had no idea what a hitbox or a hurtbox was or anything. We just hit moves. And when one move beat another move, we were just like, oh, this move has good priority. You know, like we didn't even know what it necessarily meant. And to this day, priority really doesn't have any actual meaning. I've kind of purposely tried to give it uh, a more modern take of a meeting so that it it's... 
a term we can still use. Now, obviously, Street Fighter Five has the priority system in which... Same with Street Fighter Three, right? Yeah, yeah, where heavier attacks just beat lighter attacks when they trade. But in general, priority as the vague term that we used to use a long time ago. Nowadays, I just use as the... Uh, ratio of hitbox to hurtbox. If you have a giant hitbox and a smaller hurtbox, it has good priority. You know, it has the ability to beat out other moves. Because from what I understand, and this is obviously just me from the outside, you experienced it, was just <laughs> that this was before you guys had hitbox viewers or anything like that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're like, oh, this move beats that move. Like, you just assumed that it was like a rock, paper, scissors thing, and then when people looked at the frame, or actually, like, got to look at it, it was like either, like, oh, no, this move just came out faster, it was yeah. active sooner, or that move just had a better hitbox, hurtbox ratio, like you're Or something, yeah. We were like, this move just hits other moves really well. And funny enough, like, once we started figuring out how hitboxes and hurtboxes worked, it was cool. You know, we got some of those Japanese guides and stuff, but one of the first home games ever to have a hitbox viewer was Night Warriors aka Darkstalkers 2 on the Sega Saturn it wasn't really it wasn't a intentional feature that they put in there there was a way to access the debug menu by setting the date of your console either to all the way in the past or somewhere way into the future and then holding certain buttons and then when you started it up you could have a hitbox viewer you could even pause it and go frame by frame you just basically enabled the debug menu that was never meant to be found in that game and the first time I found out about that code I put it in right away and I just wanted to like watching all the hitboxes and hurtboxes interact I was like this is so cool oh man I was so happy about that <laughs> imagine the, the first exposure to hitboxes and hurtbox viewers yeah, yeah. like even the game to see those that's amazing yeah uh not to bay or not to bay asks what about the name cps chain so the cps1 chain was a technique that existed since the original street fighter 2 which was uh, something that TZW used to do a lot in his VHS combo videos, and I didn't get it. I didn't know how he comboed crouching light kick into back fist and all these things like that with Guile, and it never made any sense until we started finding out what that glitch was, which is basically if you have a rapid fire uh, light. Like light? Yeah, like a light attack, you could chain it into the opposite button. So if it was a light punch you would chain it into uh, kicks. If it was, uh, uh, if it was a, light, a rapid fire kick, you could chain it into punches, but you also had to change from standing to crouching or from crouching to standing. And you did it by doing the button, like so you hit crouching light kick, and then you would let go, stand up, and have to hit light kick and heavy punch at the same time at a very specific timing. Or you could do, and, and actually in the original Street Fighter 2 games, you could even do this into medium punches as well. Uh, there was no official name for it. I named it the CPS1 chain in my Alpha 3 guide because they put it into the Xism characters as a jokey throwback. 
to uh, the original Street Fighter 2 because Exism was supposed to be like Super Turbo mode. So they just added the CPS 1 chains in there, even though Super Turbo didn't have CPS 1 chains anymore. The reason why I named them CPS 1 chains is because they only existed in World Warriors Champion Edition and Hyper Fighting, which were the CPS 1 games. They, they removed that bug by the time they got to Super and Super Turbo, but they put it into Alpha 3 just for, you know, just, just as a funny throwback and kind of like as a cute thing that you could find. And in my FAQ for Alpha 3, I need to describe that combo system, so I just called it the CPS1 chain. And that's what everybody calls it now. So, yeah, again, another terminology that I helped uh, create. That is really cool because it's really really fascinating was one i didn't know about the cps chain till just now uh-huh. is that in alpha 3 they referenced a bug turned feature <laughs> yep yep what the hell <laughs> yep and uh that was the cool thing you know a lot of the times in those old games the bugs that people found the developers would keep in there guilty gear is the most infamous for that uh, I don't remember if we talked about this more, but, but like jump installs, faultless defense canceling and stuff like that were all bugs. They didn't mean to have any of those in the game, but, you know, they've kept them in all the future games until Strive. And so, you know, um, they they were just like, these are neat. People like this. We're not going to take it away from them and we're going to leave it in there. So don't you love it when that happens where, where a bug actually becomes popular enough to like, yeah, everyone, we're going to keep it. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> I mean, it's funny because, you know, people have asked me before, you know, oh, if you ever rebalance CVS2, what would you do? You know, and, you know, while roll cancels exist, I wouldn't get rid of them, actually. I would find a way to keep roll canceling in the game, but tweak them a little bit. So the way roll canceling works uh, is that the roll, like when CVS2, CVS1 came out, the roll was invincible only on frame two and forwards. You couldn't use it as a wake-up. You Uh could actually hit it on the first frame. In CVS2, in betas that we played at E3, the rolls could be hit low. Sweeps could just hit rolls. By the time CVS2 came out, they just made the rolls completely invincible from frame one. Like, so, so you could actually use them as a reversal. But what you realize now is that the invincibility of rolls is not tied to the actual roll in the animation frames. It just gives you invincibility. Right. And for every character, they just programmed a different amount of invincibility. Well, you could Kara cancel the first frame of a roll into a special move. But the first frame of the roll would come out, give you the invincibility, then you would cancel into the special move, and the game was like, uh? and let you do the special move, and the invincibility just kept going. And so that's where roll canceling, that's why roll canceling works the way it does. Now, the window to roll cancel is so small, so if I actually tweaked uh, CVS2, I would just actually make the roll canceling window a little bit bigger. So it would be easier for everybody to do it. But the thing is, the later you cancel it, the less invincibility you get on your special move. So it's actually a next. So you're actually still rewarded for doing the full best roll cancel. So I would leave it in there so everybody who plays it could still do the same thing that they've always done. But you would not be rewarded rewarded as much. The better you are at it. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. It's just like no, 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 it's okay. A revelation. I'm like that's so. So I, I actually really like that. I understand that that's a 
a mechanic. First off, it was, it was an unintended mechanic, so it's hard for a casual player to even find out about it. Yeah. Stuff, so I understand that, and I also know it's hard to execute. But it gives something for those experienced high-level players to do. It's something yeah. cool and also very good to do, and I, so I, I like that. Yeah. I understand the argument that, like, well, then eventually... Um, there's going to be such a clear divide between experienced players and casual players because, you know, the execution requirement's that much stricter, but right. I also think that's that's fine. I think that makes things fun. Yeah, and, 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 you know, for people who aren't familiar with CVS2, CVS2 was a horribly unbalanced game. Characters like Sagat and Bison and Sakura and Blanca, uh, Kami, were all just, like, super good. And towards the end of the game's life cycle, it wasn't the like. There's like what seven thousand characters in the game, and like most of them were irrelevant. And then there as were like ten like relevant characters. Yeah, but then when role canceling got more prevalent, it actually opened up the cast a lot more because <clears throat> people could actually beat Sagat all of a sudden, <laughs> you know. So uh, people learned how like it actually made the game better in a weird way. Uh, it, it made the character variety stronger. <laughs> so, so it helped the game out. And mm -hmm. um, there, there's another bug that I'm familiar with that helped a game out competitively, but it caused a lot of... Uh, it divided the player base, was in Melee. In Melee, mm. you had wave dashing. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that yeah, was yeah. based off a of bug. You you would do your air dodge into the ground at a very specific angle, and then your character would slide across the ground and give you really fast movement mm -hmm. while, while being in neutral state. Yeah, yeah. And... So I'm not going to go too far in it because I'm not even that much of an expert on it. Yeah. But like that was another example of a bug that players mm -hmm. found. They're like, hey, this is actually really cool, and it, you know, it helps characters who are maybe like completely garbage be somewhat viable and it just added another layer to the game but then nintendo well so nintendo's stance especially earlier on was like <laughs> no we don't want this to divide the player right. base between competitive and casual mm -hmm. and we feel this is too much of an execution barrier <coughs> and it's just gonna help Good players win more against you know, right. not so good players, so we, we don't want to have this mechanic in the game anymore. Yeah, and <clears throat> and that's a tough thing there because most of the time, a lot of these systems were discovered by people just because they understood how the game worked. You know, being a person who wrote all these system guides, and you know, I would break down exactly how runs work and everything like that. You know. Um, it was cool to figure out these things. Like even wave dashing in Marvel versus Capcom 2 wasn't an intentional thing. They just made it so that if you dash, you could cancel your dash with uh, holding back. So in other words, oh, if, you, yeah, if, if you dash and someone started a super, you could hold back and block it every single time. No problem, right? Because you could just cancel your dash into holding back or holding down or whatever. But then, you know, you could dash by hitting two punches. You know, they, they always made it so that in those games, you, you hit two punches, you would dash, you hit two kicks, you would super jump. They gave you alternate ways to input those methods. And so what people figured out is if I dash with punches, I can then hit down to cancel that dash, and I would just be crouching. But then if I let go of the crouching, I'd be standing again so I could dash again. So I would just hit two punches. So if I just learned this rhythm to go down in two punches like this, I can now wave dash across the screen and um, 
You know, I love that kind of stuff. You know, it, it wasn't something that they programmed in intentionally into the game, but people just figured out how to take advantage of it. You know, it's it's why games like Symphony of the Night have uh, lived for so long and are considered some of the, is considered one of the greatest games is because, you know, they gave Alucard this backdash and you could cancel it into jumps, you can cancel into whatever, and there's it, it feels good. <clears throat> you know what I mean? It like, feels good on the hands, it feels good on your own, you know, like, look at me, you it's know. satisfying. Yes, it's satisfying. satisfying, yes. And, and, and what a lot of fighting games these days are doing is taking away a lot of that satisfying stuff, uh, in my opinion. And They want to make sure that, uh, paraphrasing, they want to make sure that every player coming right out of the gate has access to all the, um, you know, all everything your character mm -hmm. basically has to offer right out, right out of the gate. So they they basically get rid of all the really complicated stuff. But instead of just making it like, oh, hey, here's this really complicated thing that you can do if you really want. There's like, no, no one gets to do that, so it's a level playing field. Yeah. And I feel like that kind of just makes things less fun yeah yeah it definitely hurts it a little bit too and you know it's interesting too because the 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 ease factor does change a lot of gameplay stuff too uh you know uh in terms you know obviously you hear me talk about invincible dps all the time people hate invincible dps because you could mash them out in the middle of block strings the interesting thing about it was you know you had a game like super turbo with ken with like one of the most scary uppercuts in the game the thing about it is uppercuts weren't mashable before in old games. SPDs weren't mashable. It's like when it detected that you input the motion for a special move, like the next few inputs couldn't register it again or something. I don't know how they did it. I still don't know the technical thing wow. for it, but if you just mash and try to do uh, uppercuts in Street Fighter 2, it won't come out a lot of the times. You have to time it. Same thing with SPD. If someone is like going short, 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 and you mash 360 and punches with Zangief, a lot of times the SPD wouldn't come out. Like you actually had to time it properly. And then once you started getting towards the other games, like Alpha, all of a sudden you could uh, washing machine the, 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 the spinning pile drivers. And then <laughs> Street Fighter Four, you started being able to mash the DPs. And I'm not sure, like... Obviously, they did that to make it easier to do the moves, but then that's why a lot of people hate invincible uppercuts now because they are mashable. And so, you know, putting it's free. yeah, yeah, and, and 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 that's what made spinning pile driver feel so good in super turbo and hyper fighting and stuff. Because if I did light kick into spinning pile driver, keep in mind the opponent can't jump out of the tick throw because pre jump frames were grabbable. So there was a couple of pre-jump frames that they'd be on the ground and you would suck them in with the spinning pile driver. The thing about it is that took a remarkable amount of skill because one, standing light kick, for example, is massively plus on block. It doesn't even have recovery frames, right? Like standing light kick for Zangief in the Street Fighter 2 series, the last frame is an active frame of that move and it's always been that way. It's kind of ridiculous. Uh, so if I did light kick into SPD, it would usually be too early and you'd whiff the SPD. So you uh -huh. had to learn how to uh -huh. time it to grab them out of their pre-jump frames and you couldn't 
mash it anyways. Even if it was perfectly timing, if you mashed it, it would not work. So you had to learn how to light kick precisely do the SPD. And when you got them and you knew they couldn't jump, oh my God, that like even to this day, even though I've done this maybe uh, thousands of times in my lifetime with Zangief, it still feels so good <laughs> to do light kick into SPD on a character. Oh God, it feels like when you know they can't jump out of it and they miss their reversal, you're just like, oof, God, it feels good. And I miss that. Like that that's the beauty, right? It's like yes, it technically in, in, in a way it's it's unintended, and you guess it could be cheap if done right. But it was so hard to do right. So when you <laughs> did do it right, it was so satisfying. Yes. Oh God, it felt good. <laughs> and actually, so uh, not to bay uh, was mentioning a pianoing, and that's something I was gonna mention. That's why mm -hmm. pianoing was more prevalent back then because that was how you would get you know you had multiple chances essentially to get a movie you really needed to come out mm -hmm. to come out. Yeah. Now that's not really an issue anymore. Yeah, so it's interesting because, you know, we went from having to piano in games, so there's negative edge. You can do special moves by letting go of buttons. That was uh, a, a crutch put into the original Street Fighter 2 just in case you hit punch a little too early before you finish the motion. Letting go of the button would trigger it when you actually get there, and the first few frames could be Kara canceled, which is what uh, led to combos. Uh -huh. Right, which is what led to being able to do low roundhouse fireball and stuff like that uh, because they put that little leeway in there. So pianoing is basically rolling your finger across all three buttons. So you do a press, let go, press, let go, press, let go in as little time as possible. So you get six inputs for the button to hit the one frame window to do the reversal for the uppercut. You know, and it's really funny because, you know, pianoing then kind of turned into plinking for Street Fighter 4. And now in Street Fighter 5, double tapping is actually just the best way to do it because every input is repeated for two more frames. And so there's no reason to, 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 to piano anymore. You're actually better off double tapping now. And it's, it's interesting how it keeps changing like that. And even plinking was a bug in Street Fighter 4. It was a way was to... It? Yeah, it was a way to make sure that if you hit two buttons at the same time to do an EX... Uh, if you were one frame apart on the two buttons, they would still let it register. So ah. you've seen the one frame armor cancels into Ultra, like with uh, Abel and stuff like that. Like he would do one, like he would go armor into Ultra, right? You know, I've never understood how they worked. Oh. Yeah. So the first frame of every move could be canceled into an EX just in case. So if you did fireball one button and the second button one frame apart the first button would start the fireball on first frame and then the second one would go into the ex same thing with ultras if you hit them one frame apart so if you got armor on the first frame of a move you could plink it by hitting it with the ex the two buttons the ex to get the armor on the first frame and then plink it on the next button and it would cancel it into the ultra that's how the armor cancels worked in that game. But the reason why they did that was so if people hit the buttons at the wrong time, that they would make it up to you by pressing both of the buttons on the next frame. So if you hit two buttons separately, one frame apart, literally they should show up as two inputs, two separate inputs. But if it was one frame and you hit another button, they repeated the previous input to give you, to make sure that it triggers the EX or the Ultra instead. And so people figured that out, learned to use that to do the one frame links by plinking it, 
and the heavy button was the one that took priority and so it would actually just do one button two buttons and so you hit the same button two frames in a row technically speaking now the interesting thing is that's literally impossible because the way that the games register your inputs is that if you hit a button and have it pressed two frames in a row, the game thinks you've held it down. This is why double tapping doesn't work for one frame links. The only way double tapping would work is if it's registered as the button down, registered as the button up, and then registered as the button down because then it'll treat it as a new input, a new button press. If, uh-huh. you, if it sees the same button press two frames in a row, it assumes you held the button down, so the second one does nothing, right? Interesting. So plinking made it so that it pressed the second button repeated in the next frame and counted it as a new button press, which is why plinking worked in Street Fighter 4. When you plinked, it would go heavy, heavy in two frames in a row, which is literally impossible. Even on a programmable controller, you cannot press a button two frames in a row because it counts it as you holding the button down. Uh-huh. And so plinking was a way to get around that, and it created the ability to hit a button two frames in a row, which is why it was so good for the one-frame links, essentially. That makes sense, because I was always... So I, mm. I, I remember I always heard the term plinking when I got into Street Fighter Four, and I heard it like, pretty much ever since that. But it makes sense now that basically they really popularized plinking because it had a practical application yeah. in all of like, pretty much Street Fighter IV's system. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I never knew that. <laughs> and this is the thing, right? So I used to just write all these system facts and everything, and I made combo videos, and a lot of that was just about studying why things happen, and I'm a programmer, so I can... I can get these kind of things. And so I've always been fascinated by the way gaming, the fighting game systems work, which is why it's kind of, you know, a shame that I've never really had a chance to make my own fighting game. One of these days, though, one of these days, I'll try to do that. <laughs> no, absolutely, because you definitely have good ideas. I mean, I one of the things I've always liked talk about without going too much into detail about it is hearing about how you would rebalance certain fighting games mm-hmm. has always been really interesting to me because you always basically, when I hear you talk about it, you clearly understand how the mechanic already works yeah. or how the mechanics of the game already works. And you're like, okay, well then with this in mind, let's change this. That way, mm-hmm. you know, the, this this gets balanced, but the players still get to do all the cool shit that they want to yeah. do. I mean, uh, just as example. a little plug out there, uh, I think a, a person by the name, by the handle of Born2SPD has learned a ROM hack ST Super Turbo. And uh, he just recently released his first, uh, his first balance uh, hack of it. Uh, and it's been making the rounds and everything like that. And, you know, I've looked through the patch notes. I've looked at stuff like that. And, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things that, like, I look at and, like, like, not to say anything negative about what he's done, but I just, I know I could do better, <laughs> you know? Because the thing about it is, you don't want to change a lot of what happens in the game, you know? You don't want it to make it feel, like, especially with these old games, the things that are fun are fun, and you don't want to take away a lot of the things, and he did a good job of that. He he was very reserved. It was It's not HDR levels of going crazy, okay? HDR uh-huh. was like, Fei Long doesn't even play like Fei Long anymore. It's a completely different character. Um, but, you know, uh, he did a good job maintaining stuff, but I still feel like 
some of the changes that were made aren't in the spirit of how the original uh, ST works, you know? And so, I don't know. Like I said, I haven't messed with it yet. I probably should mess with it just to see how it feels and everything. But uh, I've talked to some of the guys who have worked on that, and they're trying to give me tips on how to make my own ROM hack as well. So, you know, I've been thinking about it. I've been thinking about it, maybe spending some time ROM hacking my own version of Super Turbo. (laughs) And I think the fascinating part, if I'm thinking about the same person, was they found a way to hack it into 30th Anniversary so you could play it online. Did they? Oh, I didn't even know about that one. Yeah, I think that's what I remember hearing was they found on PC. So you could play it 30th Anniversary Uh, and you could play that version. That would kind of make sense because it's just a ROM. It's just a ROM dump in 30th, so they they probably could just replace it with the other ROM, and most everything else is still intact enough that you might be able to use it. That's interesting. I'll look that up. I'll look that up and see if I can do that. God, it's, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't even know how we got to this topic. I know we were talking <laughs> about old school fighting. We were talking about your combo video. Yeah, systems and stuff, yeah. No, it's really, really cool. It's really fun, especially because not only do you have to understand about, like, oh, hey, this is how crazy some things used to be, mm-hmm. both in a, both from a sense of, hey, the developers didn't even know what they're doing. Like, they are just, they are just, you know, throwing <laughs> stuff at the wall and see yep. what's stuck kind of thing. Yep. Or they're like, hey, Let's do something absolutely crazy and nuts that's going to be really complicated, and then it just ends up not, you know, um, catching on too much because it's a little too complicated, maybe, yeah. uh, for example. But um, so one thing I have been talking about on Twitter recently is, you know, since we're all stuck at home, we, <laughs> we want stuff to do. Um, I was saying, like, hey, I'm trying to find out if there we could ha- start having some net play tournaments. <laughs> for course. these older, more niche fighting uh, games. Waku Waku 7. I saw you mention Waku Waku yes. 7. Waku Waku 7 was the one I wanted. But I was talking about it because, so, about a year or so ago, I started watching the YouTube channel uh, of Arcade Mikado. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Arcade Mikado, for anyone who doesn't know, it's a Japanese arcade in Japan, and it is known for hosting tournaments every week for whatever fighting game <laughs> yep. like we're gonna have a sam show 2 tournament which is common or we're gonna do kabuki clash yep just because we're gonna do new generation just because you know they're just gonna play whatever fighting game they want and it's really fascinating because even the commentators and this is something that you only get if you speak japanese even the commentators it's like all right i'm just here i don't know anything <laughs> about this game so they have one person who's like just the usual everyday commentator and the other person who's like, okay, we call this guy in just for this week who knows about this game, who can explain the unique like tech that we're about to see in this game right now. That's awesome. And it's really, really cool because it's like you'll just see everybody like, all right, old school game that we've never seen before. Why is everybody playing the same character? <laughs> no, because it's the only character that's playable out of these 10 characters. Something like, that. like, yeah, the game's busted. Oh, my God. It uh, is really cool. So, like, for me, I understand, like, no one, no, no reasonable person want to play a game where there's 10 characters, but there's only actually one or two playable characters. I understand that's never what you want to do with balance. But it's also kind of beautiful in its own way. Oops, sorry, hang on a second. I'm this is the, I'm pulling up the Mikado channel. Is this the one right here? The one with the with the blue anime girl face on it? I think so. Let me just quickly look it up. The because sure. they have their own Twitter, uh, sorry, YouTube right. channel. I'm trying to see if I have the right one because I'm trying to post it into the link 
because uh, not to bay is asking for it. Not to bay. Mm. Actually, probably I could just go uh, Samurai Showdown. So that's the other thing is that they are aware that they do have a uh, international audience. So anytime they do a tournament, they will actually write down like, "Hey, here's the Japanese title. Here's the American title of this game," so that you could easily find it. Huh. For it. That's so cool. So, they are very good about that. Okay. Uh, or, okay, is it this channel here? This, Because I see one with on a channel from Ars Magna. I don't know if that's the channel there. That, uh, there we go. No, I found it. Yeah, I found, I found their official channel. Yeah, oh, okay, it's, all, okay. it's the, it's the uh, uh, anime girl. So here's actually another reason why, for anyone who might be curious, one of the people who uh, is a regular at Mikado... Uh -huh. Is the creator of High Score Girl? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Uh huh. Uh -huh. He, that's where he actually played all the games from. Yeah. So that's just their YouTube channel, I believe. Um. So that's that's why their uh, profile, their their YouTube uh, banner, that's actually drawn by the creator of High Score Girl. Oh, that's so cool. Uh, I'm because jealous. I'm jealous. It's his home turf. It's, right. it's his home arcade. Yeah. By the way, uh, uh, Sigma Nuts, Cat Butts, the J Belmont. Oh, thank you for the subscription. <laughs> That's so cool. Okay, okay. Yeah, because he definitely grew up and played all those things. In fact, you know, have you watched uh, season two of High Score Girl yet? I haven't, but that's because I don't actually watch the anime. I read it. I used to translate uh, a few chapters of it because they needed someone who spoke English and Japanese and who understood FGC uh, history and FGC terminology. That's so cool. <laughs> so I got to translate a bit of it. So that's I was awesome. really happy about that one. I mean, one of the funny things about it was, I don't know if they do this in the comics. So uh, TMF, one of the best Zangief players out there in the world at Super Turbo, uh, is the one who actually does all the Zangi footage in High Score Girl. Uh, TZW, the guy who did all the combo videos back in the days, I mentioned him about the CPS1 chain and all that stuff like that. He's the one who records all of uh, Haruo's uh, Guile footage as well. But one of the things that TMF is known for, I, I saw this in person in the Fight Kate Offline tournament in Spain, because TMF and TZW were both there. I got to meet them. Uh, at that arc in Spain of all random places, uh, but TMF is really, really famous for perfecting the Hajiki screw, uh, which is a technique to do the spinning pile driver in the shortest amount of frames practically humanly possible, in which you actually take your joystick. I can't do it, but like you hold forward and then you flick it in a certain way, and you need to have a certain. Sp Spring strength in it, and it's and it spins, and it does the full spin for you, so you can do SPDs in like three or four frames or something ridiculous like that. I, and, I yeah, so they do it in the anime, but I have actually seen or heard about the technique before. Yeah, basically your your stick is just loose enough where you can flick it, and it will spin on its own yeah. from, the from the force. And yeah, and so play. that's what I was about to ask. In the in the actual manga, do they have Ono do that? Because they have her do it in the cartoon, in the anime. They, and my brother actually just messaged me randomly out of nowhere and was like, because I hadn't seen it yet, and he was like, is there a technique you can use with Zangief that like does this thing? And I was like, the Hajiki screw where you can do this? He was like, yes, that's what she does in the anime. And I was like, they put it in the anime? That is amazing. And so... <laughs> so High Score Girl is absolutely an anime or a manga, whatever, whatever way you like to, you know, take in that sort of uh, media that you need to look into if you're an old school arcade fan or old school FGC fan because it's mm -hmm. not 
it is it is created and written by someone who actually went through all of it. It's all completely accurate. Yep. It is not like none of it's BS, none of it's some fake like anime technique. Like no, these are all <laughs> real things that you could actually Dude, do that actually happened. My favorite was when Virtual Fighter Two first came out in the show, and then Ono was doing Akira's knee, and uh, Haruo was like. What the heck? This move is like so hard to do and she's doing it like nothing. Dude, that move is so hard to do. Stun Palm of Death, she was also doing that in the show and that combo was always super hard to do. It's it's really funny, dude. Like it's it's crazy how accurate it is. I mean, obviously the show, you know, is a lot about love triangle and drama or whatever, but all the gaming stuff in there is so good and I love the I love the romance story anyway. So, I it's a really good blend. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite things I laughed about, and this is, this is actually a chapter I translated, and so I was dying, was oh, so they so cool. all entered an ST tournament. And this is back in the day when there were no character bans. And yeah. so there's this one scrubby kid who just picks Akuma every single match. And so there's a there's one scene that Haro's like, oh no, I gotta fight this Akuma player. What do I do? What do uh -huh. I do? And the guy messes up the yep. code. And gets and brown Ryu. Gets orange Ryu. Yeah, or, yeah, orange Ryu. And um, so every they make that joke like, oh, there's the orange Ryu. You messed up the Akuma code. <laughs> and then so and awesome. then they go the twist the knife even further. Like, yeah, and the kid sucks. He doesn't know what he's doing is Ryu. He he's he's actually a scrub. He just right. takes advantage of Akuma. He has no idea. How to play. <laughs> oh, oh it was brown God. Ryu. That's what was brown Ryu. Sorry. And you know what the funniest thing is too is that the reason why brown Ryu came up is because people didn't actually know how to do the Akuma code because the Akuma code was incorrectly taught to every for the longest of time. I can do the Akuma code almost like 99% of the time now. Uh, the mistake was that a lot of people would hit start and three punches at the same time. And it's actually hit start, hold start, and then hit three punches. So you can actually see Ryu pop up and then change into Akuma like a little bit afterwards. But everyone would hit it at the same time and that didn't register it. And then the start button gave you brown Ryu. <laughs> Oh, God. God. So, God, it, it, it's great. So, yes, if you haven't, I'm sorry to make this a shameless plug. Read, watch High Score Girl. Yeah. It's it's not only good, it is actually accurate, and it is written by someone and created by someone from the FGC. Absolutely take it out, and then take a look at uh, Arcade Mikado if yeah. you want to look at their tournaments for so the random fighting games that they will do. I, I, dude, they... Actually, one of the first videos I ever saw wasn't even for fighting. They had an Alex Kidd tournament. What? <laughs> and I was like, how do you do that? And basically what they were doing was it was a... Because Alex Kidd's a co-op platformer. And basically it was whoever could get farthest. And But in, in Alex Kidd co-op mode, you could jump on top of other people and block people. So oh. what people would do was someone make a really hard jump across a pit first, uh -huh. and then they just stand at the other side, so they're like, yeah, you can't make the jump now. <laughs> you, you can't land on the platform. <laughs> and Damn. they just kill each other. Dang, okay, okay. That's sick. That's it hilarious. It was stupid and it was hilarious. Dude, that's hilarious. Oh my god. Alex Kid Tournament. I'm down. I'm down with that. <laughs> yeah, so they will do that. They will, Most of the tournaments are fighting games, but sometimes they'll just be like, yeah, we're going to do an Alex Kid Tournament just because. <laughs> so sick. Yeah, so, they, they were good at that. Mikado was good. Acho was another arcade that did that a lot. They would run a lot of random. I I mean, when I was a when I was a when I was a kid. No, this was after college. You know, basically, bef during the dark ages time, 
I would just sit there and download Acho videos all day. I watched so many Acho Guilty Gear videos. And Guilty Gear XX, I used to have so much knowledge of those games because I watched so much match footage from them. And that's all I did at work. I just put it on in the background or just like I press compile on some code and I'd be like, well, I got to wait for this to finish compiling. So I would just start watching, watching <laughs> some match videos and stuff. Man, I used to watch so much Acho footage back in the day. God. And it was all on the real media or whatever crappy WMVs and stuff, you know. Oh, man. So that actually reminds me, because uh, I've been meaning to ask about this. So nowadays, uh, I feel like the FDC is ki kind of segregated into their, their games. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, Street Fighter players only pretty much play Street Fighter for the most part. Yeah. Maybe they'll play other Capcom fighters. Like, maybe they'll also play Marvel and stuff like that. But usually anime plays anime, whatever, yada, yada, yada. But I hear of so many people... Like, who are now known for playing Street Fighter, known for playing Marvel, who during the Dark Ages just played Guilty Gear. And I find that really <laughs> fascinating to hear, like, everybody played Guilty Gear almost. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's funny because Alex Vai was the national Tekken champion at one point in time. And he was also a West Coast best MVC2 player at one point in time as well. You know people don't realize how much people played all the different games. I've often told the stories of Tokido show, you know, at Evo walking around with like four or five medals around his neck because he would just place in top eight at every game. Cause he was so good at everything. Uh, it was different because back then when you were in the arcades and you lost, uh, you just had to wait. Like there'd be the cabinet would just have like 10 quarters across it, 10 tokens across it. And you just had to wait for your turn again. So what did you do when you wait? A lot of times you would just go play a lot of the other games. You know, you would just go, oh, okay, I'll just go play Guilty Gear. You know, oh, I'll go play. So you learned a lot of the other fighting games. Also, nowadays, because so much is on the line, a player like Tokido can't afford to practice all the other games. He needs to focus on all of his efforts on Street Fighter V so that he can actually win. <laughs> He doesn't, uh -huh. you know, before back in the days, the, the players were all good, but they were all good to this level. Nowadays, they're all good to like this level. And so someone like Tokido has to really focus that hard in order to be able to stay on top without playing a lot of other games. Obviously, there are guys like freaking Kazunoko and Goichi and, you know, Sonic Fox who are just ridiculous at everything they touch and it's uncanny. But, you know, that's very rare. And so, uh, I mean, Justin Wong won a Tekken 5 tournament on, on, an, e on an Evo East one year. Um, I didn't even know about that. Yeah, and uh, it was because someone told him he couldn't learn Tekken. They were like, you can't learn Tekken. And that's all Justin needed as motivation, and he won Tekken 5 at an Evo East. And uh, But, yeah, like... People just don't play multiple games as much anymore because of the amount of dedication that it takes. And it's, 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 you don't have any reason to stop playing the one that you're playing because you're just sitting there waiting on ranked all day. You know, it's not like you have two consoles and while you're waiting for a match, you're playing the other fighting game. <laughs> That's fair. That's a good point. You know, right? <laughs> you, it's, it's so, oh, dude, Combo Fiend? God, like, it makes me so mad every time people think of Combo Fiend as that guy who worked for Capcom and made the functions comment. Like, 
People don't realize Combo Fiend is one of the greatest fighting game players that the U.S. has ever produced. He was Wasn't he a CVS2 god? He was a CVS2 god. He was a Guilty Gear god. Oh. He was a Marvel vs. Capcom 2 Iron Man god. He was like one of the best Iron Mans on the planet. He played everything and he was one of the best at everything. And a lot of it came because he... He had his own little personal rivalry with Vi. He just wanted to beat Vi at everything. Combo Fiend was so good at everything. God, like, I can't even explain to you. Like, if he didn't join Capcom, because as soon as he joined Capcom, he wasn't allowed to play in Street Fighter tournaments anymore. But even before that, like, he was the best. I mean, he was the one who did that bionic, the famous bionic arm video versus Marn in Marvel 3, right? I mean, he was relevant all the way up until that point in which he couldn't enter the Capcom games anymore. And it was one of the biggest losses I feel like we ever had was him not being able to enter these Capcom games. And, I mean, I can't even explain to people how talented Combo Fiend is. You know, it's, it's, it's a shame that some people don't, know that about him about how just how ridiculous that guy was as a player god man yeah yeah and that i miss combo fiend i mean i know combo fiend is doing other work right now you Mm -hmm. know he's still in the industry from what i understand um but yeah i mean the fighting game uh landscape is, is very different I mean, Combo Fiend was so good at all these games, mm-hmm. and I imagine he'd still be good even now. It's just more, oh, yeah. I don't know if he'd want to be, because right. I don't know if there's as many games that you could feel as passionate about if you liked those games back in the day. Yeah. He, he's <clears throat> also told me, too, that uh, he's actually not as big of a fan of like the whole like playing for you know, these big prize tournaments. I mean, he, he was about one of those. He was like the epitome of play for pride play because I just want to beat you kind of thing. And, you know, I think that was one of the most appealing things for him. Uh, again, don't quote me on that. Uh, I don't want to misquote him or anything like You're that. You're not his lawyer. You don't represent him. Yeah, anyway. exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but, you know, I don't think the, the it, it's quite the same for him right now. And like, like, you know, you said, he's still working on stuff. Uh, he works at Marvel right now for the gaming stuff. If you played the most recent Spider-Man game, his name is in the credits somewhere oh. in there. Yeah. Uh, so. uh, last thing I remember was Ultimate Alliance. I thought that's what he worked on, yeah, the latest so, one. <laughs> uh, he, uh, his name was in that Spider-Man game's credits. So uh, people were like, oh, look, Peter Rosas. What the heck? You know, <laughs> there he is. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so uh, after... So- Working on MVCI, he was like, I'm going to switch to the other side. <laughs> I, I, I think that's a perfectly fine yeah. choice. Uh, wow, it's it's just really interesting to me. Just Because um, right now, I feel like I'm in a weird spot in regards to uh, the games I play. Mm-hmm. Because I've always been playing Street Fighter, sure. But what a lot of people don't realize was that I kind of first got my big start playing Marvel 3. Right. I, I wasn't a Street Fighter 4 player. I was a, street, I was a Marvel 3 player. Mm-hmm. Then I went to Street Fighter 4, and then Street Fighter 5 happened, and that's where things really took off. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting, because then I talked to a bunch of these other Street Fighter players, and most of them only play Street Fighter. Yeah. 
And for me, it's always been like, hey, if there's something I don't like about this game, so in like Street Fighter V's case, online's awful, so I don't want to play <laughs> that game at all during this time, <sighs> I'm just going to go play another fighting game that hopefully has a better online experience. Right. And for a lot of other people, I feel like they feel almost as if they're trapped, like they're not allowed to pick another fighting game, as if they're, they're, they're betraying their, their main game in some way. Well, I mean, a lot of it also, and again, this is this now goes into less objective, more subjective <laughs> realm territory here. So, you know, this is my opinion on things and something that I've talked about a lot. And uh, uh, I know a lot of people don't necessarily agree with me on this. So take this however you want to take it. But, mm. you know, uh, a lot of fighting games these days can't be played by feel anymore. And uh, if you are a strong player, we talked about this in previous episodes about the emotion versus the science players and things like that. And the emotion players used to excel because they could jump from game to game because as long as you kind of knew what the tools you had, you could still win at those games because you felt like you could play by feet, you could learn as you keep playing. But a lot of the modern games these days are so frame data oriented like Street Fighter V, you have to keep playing because you have to know, is this canceled in the V-Trigger plus or minus? Is this move plus or minus? You know, what's this situation? And you can't even necessarily play it by feel as much. Once you understand the situations, then yes, it becomes a feel game as in, I want to steal my turn or I know it's my turn, I know it's your turn. But you still have to know that in the first place. You need to know the data, the science in order to be able to play by the heart and there's a prerequisite yes and a game like samurai showdown for example is a game all about heart right that game is all about playing by feel and so what did we see at evo we saw the average age of what 35 or something like that for the top eight at evo because it catered to what the players used to play by. It was about feel now. And, you know, a lot of people say, oh, no, that's just different. You guys learned it differently back then. Today, w frame data would rule every game. Everything would be different. Samurai Showdown at EVO was proof that that is not true. That, you mm. know, in a time... It came out in a time with all these frame data heads and all these things like that, and they couldn't beat the best heart players out there, like like a Henry Sen and a Vi and a Justin Wong, you know, like all the frame data in the world and knowledge and all that stuff couldn't get you to beat those players. There is a definite distinct difference between heart games and mind games. And uh, Street Fighter V is a heavy, heavy mind game, you know, and I don't mean like mind game as in play the mind games. I mean, it's, it's very catered towards knowing and memorizing data, memorizing situations and making your decisions based off of what the default is. So if you're minus two, the default is block and maybe late tech, but then you think, oh, he's going to steal the turn. So now I'm going to counter with my button. I'm going to press buttons even though I'm minus because he's stealing the turn, blah, 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 etc., etc. So, you know, at that point in time, yeah, there's reads and everything like that. But in order to get to that point, you have to understand so much of the actual number data of everything that happens and understand the logic behind it, the input buffers, force it so that everybody is perfect on all timing, you know, and these things like that. And uh, I just really feel like even if 
even in today's age with all the YouTube and wikis and Twitter and all that stuff that we have today, if we were playing MVC2, Third Strike, and Super Turbo right now, uh, frame data wouldn't matter. Frame data wouldn't matter, and the heart players would still be winning those games. I, I really mm. honestly believe that, because the frame data doesn't matter in those games. They, they, they just don't. <laughs> like, I, I've been telling newer players who come into my streams every once in a while, whenever it comes to learning any fighting game. So, I mean, Street Fighter V is a little bit more of the exception. Like, you need to know, like, how mm -hmm. plus your moves are, how plus your opponent's moves are. You need to know when your character's turns are, so to speak. Yeah. But for the most part, I tell players, like, hey, when it comes to frame data, all you need to know really is what's your fastest move, what's your opponent's fastest move. Yep. And then That is the bare minimum you need. Yeah, and you don't need to memorize the numbers. I've, I've had a whole episode on this. All you need to know is your turn, my turn. That's it. Like, after you block this move, it's your turn. After you block this move, it's my turn. That's all you really need to know, you know, kind of situation. And so one thing I liked about Sam's show, uh, just, just talking about the community at the time, was because it was basically more of a feel game, you know, the, the numbers are pretty unimportant in terms of frame data, and it, it was able, to, basically anyone who played any fighting game could basically jump into it. Yeah. And so what I loved about that was because, once again, we had the issue where I felt like a lot of fighting games got segregated into their own subgroups, mm -hmm. it was that this was the first time in a while where I got to see so many players, prominent players from so many prominent fighting game scenes uh -huh. come into one game, <laughs> yeah. and it, for me, felt like FGC All-Stars. Yeah. That's what it felt like to me, and I was like, this is cool. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm, here, uh, I'm here as a Street Fighter player, playing with like Baye, right, who's known for Street Fighter as well, playing with Kizzy K, who's known for anime mm -hmm, games, mm -hmm. right? And it, it was really cool seeing all of, and also like, yeah, Lost, uh, uh, like, let's see, there was a Lost Soul, yep. also known for playing Gear, yep. and seeing all these players coming together, seeing, uh, of course, all the uh, SNK players, all the KOF players coming <laughs> together, like, it was so cool yeah. seeing every single community's major players coming in to play Sam's show. That was yeah. the best part about Sam's yeah. show. Uh, uh, and Grand Blue is kind of the same way right now. Grand Blue has kind of done that. And Grand Blue is another game that you can play largely by heart as well, although there are a lot more frame data specific situations. Uh, but... I mean, it's funny because, you, you know, you mentioned Street Fighter V as kind of the exception. But to be honest with you, Tekken's always been that way. And Tekken is still that way. Uh, mm. Mortal Kombat 11 is a huge frame data game now. It's basically the same thing now uh, as all these other games. You can tell by the way that all, so many of the moves are designed through their frame data. Certain moves are minus six on purpose to be as negative as possible, but not punishable. You know, and, and things like that. All three of those games, which are three of the more, you know, mainstream games right now, are all super frame data heavy. It's a it's a path that a lot of fighting games have gone towards. And, you know, it is one of the things that, you know, I talk about. And like I said, I sound like an old man and, you know, yelling at clouds about this whole thing. You know, uh, I get people like, you know, Ultra David and Hanzo Gonzo and all these guys just, you know, like... This is how it would. This is how it is now. And if we played those old games now, that's how it would be with those old games. And I just, I like, I'm waiting for somebody to go. Okay, you you say that. Study all the frame data in the world. Take the training mode in hyper fighting and everything. Do everything you can. Like dedicate yourself to all that stuff. Go beat Mike Watson in in hyper fighting, and you won't do it. 
and you won't be able to do it. And I, I, Mike Watson won't know a damn thing about any of the frame data of what he's doing, and it won't matter. Do I look like I know what a frame data is? Yeah, exactly. So it's it's crazy. It's crazy that, you know, uh, people... I, I honestly don't believe it. I, I got into an argument with Logan about it as well uh, on Twitter just recently. You know, he said, so do you... He asked me, do you honestly believe that if with all the technology that we have and YouTube and everything like that, that, you know, a game like Super Turbo would not be played through frame data and all that stuff. And I was like, yes, I 100% believe that, that frame data would not be important in Super Turbo. I mean, one, not everything leaves you right next to the other person like they do in every fighting game these days. There's this point blank feeling right now. Everything in Super Turbo pushed you hella far away. Almost everything was plus on block anyway. And frames are one frame. And throws are one frame. So there's no such thing as turns. <laughs> if you're minus one, you're punishable if you're in range of a throw. <laughs> like, <laughs> there's just no such thing as turns. <laughs> if you're minus one, you were punishable. You couldn't even invincible uppercut. That's it. If you were minus one against Zangief and in SPD range, he spinning pile drived you. That oh, was it. Oh, God. So that was a much scarier matchup, right? Yeah. So, like it. That's that's what, one thing I just want to get get make clear for anyone who's watching is this isn't a all the games now should be like that where frame data is unimportant. That's, right. That's yeah, not yeah. 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 My yeah. Point. Mm -hmm, that is one hundred percent not my point. I'm just pointing out that it was different back then, mm -hmm. and I also want game developers to just kind of recognize, hey, the frame data doesn't have to be everything. Yes. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of one of the important things. And, and yeah, MQS in the chat uh, mentions this as well, which is also true, which is uh, Hit Sun and Block Sun was the same for, like, the majority of the attacks in Super Turbo. This. I remember you told yeah, me Yeah, uh, there's, like, no difference between. Only jump attacks against standing opponents does it change. But outside of that, and very few certain weird moves, like super combos, would put you into extra long hit stun just to make sure the super combo would actually connect. But for the most part... All mediums, all heavies, and all lights had the same hit stun as each other and block stun. So every forward kick, every medium punch, standing or crouching, had the same hit stun and block stun. Every light attack, whether standing or blocking, had the, like there was set reel animations. There was the light reel animation, the medium one, and the heavy one. Same thing with the block stun. So if I hit you with standing fierce or standing heavy kick, the reel was the same length. So the ability to combo wasn't manufactured because when you look at something like Street Fighter V, they can change the length of everybody's hit stun and block stun so that they can just, to a science, be like, this move is plus two on hit, but minus five on block. Like, it's a seven-frame swing, you know? <laughs> but, like, no. it doesn't quite make sense, but they can just program however they want it to be. Whereas in those old games, it was just whatever was the default, you know, like medium. If a combo happened after a medium button, if I could cancel a medium into a special move and it comboed, then it worked off of medium punch or medium kick. Same thing with heavy. If it was if it comboed off of fierce, it comboed off of roundhouse, etc., etc. Like the hit stuns were universal. And so it was just it was a lot clear. There was very little memorization. And like I said, almost everything was plus on block. In Super Turbo, anyway, <laughs> because real, if, if real it was quick aside, sorry, I just wanted to just point out because the comments, my that is actually one of my favorite things with ST because, uh, or even just two in general, was because you know, um, special canceling was still so new. Is yeah, doing Ryu sweep into fireball was always super satisfying. Yeah, yeah. I love doing sweep into fireball. <laughs> 
Oh, man. And yeah, I mean, frame traps don't exist in Street Fighter 2 a lot of the times because if you try a frame trap, you just get thrown if they have a reversal throw. But again, the input buffer doesn't exist. So a lot of times you could theoretically frame trap because you could just count on human error. That's another thing, too, that I've often complained about Street Fighter V is you can't count on human error. Even though Street Fighter IV was pretty frame data heavy as well, even if they wanted to do a perfect frame trap, they could mess it up, and you could jab them in between there. But in Street Fighter V, the chances of you messing it up are so low that you're not going to be brave enough to try to do something like that to count for someone messing up. So when Bison sat there and did like kick, like kick, like kick, like kick, like kick, like kick to you in Super Turbo, that was a true block string, okay? You just couldn't do anything. And uh, you would purposely put in gaps in between there to try to get them to hit a button so you could hit them out of it with a frame trap. But if they tried to throw you, they would throw you. So Bison's a lot of times would just throw you first. <laughs> you know, they would just try to throw you first. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's crazy. It's it's crazy how different games were back then. And, and honestly, frame data... I mean, like, we just saw uh, Kotaka Shoten at Kimono Michi blow up uh, Kurahashi, uh, you know. Kotaka Shoten, I mean, he's not new school to, to Street Fighter, but he might be one of the best Guile players on the planet in Super Turbo right now. I've actually had the pleasure of playing against him at Hey Arcade. And trust me, that shit was impossible. Like, I've never <laughs> felt... I, I th I've always thought Kami Guile was like 8-2 in Guile's favor. When I played Kotaka Shoten, it felt like a 10-0 matchup, dude. I was just like, there's literally nothing I can do in this matchup. But honestly, like, you go talk to Kotaka Shoten and you go ask him about frame data and Super Turbo, he'll be like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, I am pretty sure this guy has no knowledge of frame data in Super Turbo what, at all, whatsoever, and he is one of the best at the game. You just, you just don't need it. You just don't. And even in Third Strike, frame data can be important in Third Strike, but if you're minus one, well, let's say you're minus one and the opponent has something that gives you one space of frame in between there, you can parry it. Parries are one frame. So it doesn't matter turns because you had a way to get out of it. So they didn't have the invincible uppercut, but they had a parry. So the parry, when you watch people play third strike, all everybody does is try to parry every damn thing because it's fun and it makes you feel like a god when you do it. And it works in every situation. So even if you're minus one, minus two, and you know your fastest move is also a three-frame button, you can still at least parry everything. So it, there wasn't a much as like, I need to respect this or respect that. It's your turn. My Like everyone just tried to parry everything everywhere. <laughs> and it's it was such a different time. And now everything has really gone the Tekken route, actually. So Tekken has been this way the whole time. And uh, Ed Boon is a big fan of Tekken, I've heard. And so Mortal Kombat 11 at ending up like Tekken with the frame data stuff, I don't think is an accident. And then uh, Street Fighter V, I'm not sure why they went that way, but the game turned very Tekken as well. But even Tekken, throughout the years, they've built ways to disrespect frame data, right? The fastest moves are standing one and down one. Down ones are universally parryable. Hop kicks are invincible to down ones. It's just think that's programmed in there. So even if they down one, and you know it, you can hop kick them and say, screw your frame data. 
Standing ones are high attacks, so you can also low crush those if you have a move that puts you crouching really fast. You know, they had ways to disrespect the frame data, and uh, a lot of these modern games are learn are doing the lessons from Tekken, but not building in the ways to disrespect the frame data, which is a problem, in my opinion. I, I think that that's something that's severely missing in those games. And but this stems right back to your invincible DP argument. Yeah, it stems right back into that. And this this is basically, hey, if you ever need to explain your argument of why invincible DPs are here, mm -hmm. this is this is entire episode of our podcast of the podcast <laughs> that explain exactly why. Yep, that's exactly why I am so adamant about bringing it back. Is that it has nothing to do with how it works as a game? Because at the highest level, an invincible DP doesn't change anything. The amount of life you're going to lose for getting a DP blocked in Street Fighter V is probably going to equal to the amount of times you do land an uppercut in the middle of a block string against an opponent. You know, that it's going to balance itself out in the end, but it's just giving people at lower levels an option to feel like that they have a control. I'd had a whole Uncensored episode about this, and the most beautiful thing about a DP is when it is blocked... As a player, you go, whoops, they blocked my DP, and you die, and you're like, well, I, he guessed right. He baited my DP, and he punished me. There's no point in time in which any player is like, you know what? Screw these DPs. They're useless because they can just be blocked, and I take all this. Like, it's automatic that when you get a block, you understand that you should lose for that. You know what I mean? Like, people don't cry and whine about getting their DP blocked. It's, That's my fault. Oops, I'm dead. Exactly. And so, I mean... In third strike, how often do you see people go, I parried that. Like, oh, you're lucky I didn't parry that. I tried to parry that. Like, everybody has that excuse in third strike. They could have did the worst parry timing possible, and then they die, and they are like, dude, I totally parried that. Like, it's a way for them to try something, fail, and not feel like, this game sucks. This is stupid broken. I can't do anything. They can always think to themselves, I tried to parry that. In their mind, they're like, shit, I totally mistimed that. But they can say that out loud. <laughs> I totally knew you were going to do that. I was trying to parry that. You know, like, it, it, it helps ease players into understanding mistakes and rewards and stuff. And by not having that in a game like Street Fighter V, you block Colleen's crouching medium kick. The move looks slow as hell. And then she does standing light kick afterwards and beats you 100% of the time. Like, I, did, I was fighting Olaf, and he did that to me like 20,000 times in a row. And I got hit by it every time because I just never recognized that that move was plus on block. Because it looks slow, you know? And, like, I never had the option of doing anything else. So, yeah, that, that, that's a situation where basically the games tell you, yeah, you need to know the frame data for yeah. everything. And how this is the funny part when I explain frame data to newer players once again is like up until Street Fighter V, my way of doing frame data, even and this is even true for Sam Show, is I separate things into category. This is really unsafe. This is slightly unsafe. This is neutral. This is kind of uh, this is really this is kind of mm -hmm. positive and this is really positive. I don't even I don't even care about the individual numbers. I just talk. I just go on a scale. Like yeah, this is probably punishable by like. <laughs> Like, oh, I can probably punish this with a heavy button. Right. Like, this is only punishable with a jab, or I can't do anything about this. It's funny. I my, to keep blocking. My last episode of First Attack was exactly that. <laughs> I, I was teaching people, don't memorize numbers, put them into five categories. Here's the five categories. And it was the exact same five categories. Oh, my God. I've been teaching it that way forever, you know. 
That's how you that want to learn. That's the easiest way to remember it. Yeah, you don't have to memorize the numbers. You just need to know if it's turns or turns. Hardest thing about Street Fighter four, 5 is that there are four frame characters that shift everything a little bit. So now that this is this way, so you kind of do have to know the actual numbers at the highest, highest levels. But for the most part, uh, as you're learning, you don't want to do that. So... Yeah, and that's that's what I tell people is like for the most part you just go off of that information, and then once you get really you want to become really knowledgeable about a specific matchup, for example, then you can start looking at the individual numbers mm -hmm. of like exactly how minus is that, and do I have any move that is like exactly that much startup so I can right, do the highest yeah. damage punish, for example. Mm -hmm. And like I said, that for example in Street Fighter Four with no input buffer. Balrog's light dash punch was minus three on block, which meant Cammy could punish it with stand jab into heavy drill. That was a punish, right? The problem was that there was no input buffer in Street Fighter 4. The probability of you actually punishing that perfectly with the stand light punch was so small that you never did it. Because if you were wrong, you would light punch, he'd block it, you'd drill and die. Right. So even though you had these perfect punish situations, you'd be scared to do it. Now, if you were a Ken and you had a fierce uppercut, which you could reversal. Yeah, you would fierce uppercut and three frame punish it every single time. But for Cammy, the risk reward was too low. And so that match kind of sucked. You would block the dash punch and it would be too scary to try to punish it. So, again, human error was a factor. But in Street Fighter V, if something is a three-frame punish, and I have a three-frame button, 80% of the time I'm going to punish it. 80% of the time I'm going to punish it properly. And so, again, the input buffer changed a lot of how a Street Fighter was played, and that human error is no longer there anymore. So a lot of Street Fighter V, the reason why it is so frame data heavy is because... Everything is perfectly executed all the time. There's so little room for mistakes in that game. And again, you will see mistakes at the highest level. It happens all the time. But as a player, can you rely on mistakes? As a Balrog player against a Kami, you could rely on jab dash punching in their face because most Kamis would not try to hit you until, unless you fought a Kami that programmed the back or the select button and had that little trick and then they could plink the light button. You wouldn't do it to them because then they had a technique, to, a trick to be able to punish it a little more consistently, which is why a lot of players did map the select and the back button to somewhere. Uh, but... If that didn't exist, as a Balrog player, you could just light dash punch at a Kami and know that their chances of punishing you are low because if they're wrong, they die. You can't hit confirm one jab into a drill. So they just had to do it raw, so most Kamis were too scared to do it. You could rely on human reaction to guide what... I mean, you could rely on human error to guide what it is that you did in a match because of the probability of the player risk-reward of actually punishing you with that. In Street Fighter V, you can't rely on that. You have to assume everybody is going to punish you perfectly every single time. And that's what changes the way the game is played. So, with that in mind, one, one food for thought is uh -huh. imagine if they actually 
didn't have the input buffer they do in Street Fighter Five right now. Mm -hmm. Like it was more like Street Fighter Four, Street Fighter Two, but they kept everything else same, all the damage and stuff like that. And so would matches go a lot longer because not everyone's maximizing all their damage on all their punishes. Not everyone's getting all their punishes right. properly because now there is actually a strict window to do mm. all these inputs. I mean, even all of, even all the safe jump stuff, right? So, like for example, Cami had the you know safe jump, ambiguous cross up mix of back throw, take. A tiny like take a tiny step in the medium kick or jump or whatever like that or you know frame kills for example even frame kills in Street Fighter 4 you could count on sometimes someone messing up the timing on the frame kill in uh in Street Fighter 5 most frame kills are pretty accurate because of the input buffer one of the ways that I wanted to fix Street Fighter 5 was to make it so that the input buffer only applies to when the enemy is hit in hit stun that in season one, that was my idea, was to make it so that the input buffer only happens if the enemy is in hit stun. So it lets you do one frame combos, but it doesn't let you do one frame punishes. It doesn't let you do frame kills accurately. It doesn't let you do frame traps accurately. And I, I'd rather have that. Now, again, this is me. And again, this is subjective because there's a lot of players out there who like it this way because it's part of the strategy. Like, you should be punished for making this guess and you are wrong. I should, you shouldn't be able to get away because I can't properly time this button. And uh, to me, you know, as a person who, you know, loved watching sports and all these things like that, human error is the most fascinating thing for me. So uh, I like the fact that if someone shoots a three-pointer, just because they're open doesn't necessarily mean they'll make it. The human error adds the drama. The ball's in the air, and it feels like it's like 10 seconds before the ball actually goes in the net, right? If you see someone land a combo on somebody in Marvel or Dragon Ball, yes, it's a stupid long combo, but there's a chance they're going to drop that combo, especially something like lightning loops. And just knowing that that potential is there for them to drop the combo adds that human error aspect and adds that drama for me. You know, that's, I like that kind of stuff. That that stuff appeals to me. Same. And you also have the thing about the opposite. You know, there's always potential when you're doing a low damage punish that, wait, there's always potential I could go for a harder, more damaging punish mm -hmm. that could get me killed. Yes. That is hype. That is extremely yeah. hype. And for, for me, just so people know, I have a horrible execution. I am terrible at execution. It has never been my strong spot. That is why I will always play a character who always has like two or three hit combos. I'm never going to play a character that's that. But my point with that is, but you know what first really got me excited about FGC? It was Evo Moment 37. Yeah. One of the moments that had the highest amount of execution. Because that was such a cool thing for me to see. Like, like, People can do that? Yeah, exactly. Oh, God. And it's funny because a lot of the people who love that moment are, I don't know, I don't have any empirical proof of this, but I feel like some people who like that are people who would rather have lower execution on things. I'll tell you this right now. Just do neutral jump, heavy kick, low forward, uppercut into super. Just do that part. Skip the whole parry stuff and see how long it takes for you to actually land just that combo. <clears throat> It's hard. <laughs> the, 
That combo is already hard. So Daigo wasn't even in the clear when he jumped and parried Chun-Li's kick in the air, which none of us were expecting him to do in the first place, which is why you hear the audience roar even louder when he does it. And uh, doing that combo already off of that parry is already hard enough by itself without having all the parries. And, you know, I read an article uh, one time about esports and they asked the people in the audience, and this was for like League of Legends and stuff like that. What is it about esports that you love watching? And they said, we like watching people do things that we're not capable of doing. You know, why is AGDQ so popular? Why does AGDQ draw so many people? Because you get to see people play the game that you love in a way that you did not know it was playable. And you like watching people be good at things. And so, I mean, in Street Fighter 4, one of the most hype moments out there was Daigo's like 20-some hit combo against Momochi. You know, with Evil Ryu, where he did like the stomp combo and he spent meter for no reason on a combo that wasn't going to kill. But he did it to show off. And he did this big combo, and everybody loved that combo. Everyone talked about it. And there's a, that's why. <laughs> like, it's hype. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's super cool. And so uh, I, I find it funny because, you know, there's always the argument of, oh, well, we want to have everything be easy. We want to have everything be accessible right from the beginning. So, you know, newer players don't feel intimidated. And I feel like, no, you're going to have the opposite effect. You're going to give new players something to strive for. Yeah. Something to be like, yo, I can do that eventually when I get good enough. Right. And, you know, it's funny because, you know, you think about games like Tekken. I see some people in the chat talking about, like, oh, I'm a Tekken player. I don't know Street Fighter combos as well. Tekken has a huge input buffer. Huge input buffer. But at the same time, you also have to do a lot of perfect buffering with perfect dash-up distances, uh, there's a lot of moves that you can't buffer. Like, for example, Julia's elbow attack. You have to make sure you time that perfectly right. There's, like, all these little really, really high execution stuff that happens in Tekken that doesn't exist in Street Fighter V. And so while Tekken has this huge input buffer, input buffer isn't the only thing that causes this to make it easier. But Tekken has built in the difficulty in a lot of other ways, like making sure you can do forward, neutral, down, down, forward in the least amount of frames possible, you know, and all these little things like that. There's a lot of very subtle, very difficult things in Tekken that makes their combo system complicated as well. And yeah, when you watch it, Tekken at the highest levels, you'll know what the BMBs are and you'll know what the higher damage, higher risk combos are. And when you see people pull that off, that gets you hype. And I don't feel like we have that anymore. You know, the only one is... Uh, Saka Umanat. And because that's hard to do, but we get hyped for it. The first viral clip of Street Fighter V was Chris G doing the Guile loop combo to Blockbuster John in an online match in season one. That was the first viral clip. It was a clip of a big long combo that was hard to do. Uh, everyone said it was just going to be a training mode thing that nobody was going to be able to do in a real match. And then Chris G did it in a real match and everyone went crazy and it went viral. Outside of that, like you didn't get viral clips for stealing a turn. You didn't get a viral clip for, you know, disrespecting frame data. That's just the thing is like it's 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 a presentation thing as well. And like I said, there's nothing wrong with the other way. It's just that, you know, from a spectator, from a popularization, from a viral standpoint, how do we get people to see and and you know, a Daigo Perry goes viral, it's the most watched video in esports history. Like 
how do you get stuff like that to happen? It's it's that whole factor when you watch a Sports Center clip and LeBron James barrels down the lane and dunks on everybody. You don't have to play basketball and you're like shit. That was probably really cool and good and nobody can do that except LeBron. Right? You don't even have to play basketball. When you watch that Daigo Perry, you see the audience go crazy. You don't have to know anything about Daigo about, about the Perry system, about the frame data, about the window about how hard it is to do any of that stuff. You just listen to the audience go nuts and you're like, that is probably really hard to do. And it's like one of the most popular videos out there. That's what's missing from a lot of uh, fighting games these days. Is Like I've, I've been preaching this for a long time. We're just not making fighting games so that people are having fun and having ways to show off like that. So, so and, and so a lot of fighting games, uh, you know, try to uh entice people through other avenues and also real quick it is seven o'clock so oh yeah, yeah. okay i don't, know, I don't <laughs> know how much longer. so I'm, I'm gonna try to keep this short i'm not also trying to be like a authority on this or anything yeah, yeah no but like tekken i love watching tekken i don't play tekken i don't know a lot of what's going on with tekken, mm -hmm. but watching tekken is always exciting i actually had a recording i took at combo breaker last year of tekken finals and that was the most exciting thing i've seen and i know about like half the people watching have never played Tekken. Right. Like, I don't uh -huh. play Tekken at all. But everybody universally understood what was going on and what was really cool. Yeah, and 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 it's funny too because te it used to be the opposite. Tekken, I've always joked, was the game that during Evo you went to go grab lunch or go grab dinner because it was so boring to watch, and that's because Tekken's presentation used to suck. It really did used to suck. But in Tekken Seven, by the time they got to Seven, like Tekken Tag Two was when I first noticed they started going more the presentation route because the combos started looking kind of ridiculous. And I and as I watched it, I was like, I don't know what's going on, but this looks hype. And now Tekken 7's got all the slow-mo, the counter-hit zoom-ins, and the black and white on the trades, and all the cool camera angles. And they've, you know, done so much in terms of presentation in Tekken 7 that, yeah, you don't have to know what's going on, and it's super hype to watch. And... Street Fighter V went the exact opposite direction. They lost all of that hype stuff in, 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 in that game. You lost a lot of the visual hype for players who can watch it casually and enjoy it. And it's one of the hard things. Like, you know, if you see someone, uh, like for example, uh, the, the, the clip that kind of came in the question on, um, on uh, the Twitter that kind of started the whole conversation that I had with like Hi-Fi and uh, Eli and uh, Logan was um, uh, Rob TV blocking the V reversal of Sagat, counter poking with crouching medium kick, and uh, Zaffarino, the Sagat player, did medium DP and blew up the crouching medium kick. And the commentators were like, oh my god, and everyone's like, oh damn, that's so hype, or whatever like that. To a casual viewer, that's not more hype than I'm just going to hit you with an uppercut and they don't understand it. They don't understand that you're minus two in that situation, but at a range. So Karen's going to go with a six frame button because that beats Sagat's four frame lights because he's a four frame character. But the medium DP happens to also be invincible on the third frame. So you can use that to be in that situation. Like that's how much knowledge you have to have to understand that situation. Whereas when Daigo walks up and fierce uppercuts Gamer B three times in a row on Gamer B's wake up, like, 
you just get hype. You know what I mean? Because you know that the uppercut is super punishable and it just makes it exciting when you see someone just do that and you're just like, this is so cool, you know? Like just that tells you the the mental domination, so to speak. You know, just like, oh, he was in Gamer B's head. He's like, I'm going to do this thing that could totally blow, blow up in my face. I'm just going to do it in front of you three times in a row. Yep, and it's not even FADC-able. <laughs> you know, now, you don't need to know that to get hype about it. You know what I mean? But at the same time, it's like... Like I said, the amount of knowledge you have to have to understand the hype moments in Street Fighter V are, are, make it so that it's not as viewer-friendly. You know what I mean? And that's what I feel like is missing from the game uh, so much. So um, Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a lot of, like, in that situation you just explained with Zaffirino and uh, Rob TV, a casual audience member probably said, like, okay, so I guess this guy just did this attack, and for some reason the guy got hit. Yeah. Uh, so oh, he uppercutted his leg. Doesn't that always work? You know, but to truly understand that moment, you have to know that the V reversals are minus two, that Sagat is a four frame character, that Karen has a six frame crouching medium kick that will hit on the fourth frame of their light button. You have to know that there's a priority system that makes it so that her medium kick will beat the light button on trade and that the medium DP that Sagat has goes invincible on the third or fourth frame so that it will beat that but so it can actually beat uh, Karen's crouching medium kick. Like that's how much you have to understand and everyone's trying to always explain to me, but don't you understand why it was such a great decision why I'm so hyped? Yes, I understand it, but nobody else is going to. <laughs> it requires a lot of knowledge, inherent knowledge on top of, you know, everything. Yeah. And, and then it comes down to, okay, and Zafrino knew Rob TV knew all this information as well, but also knew, like, wait, I can take advantage of the situation. Right. However, now you try to explain to a stronger player, for example, let's say uh, Colleen does do crouching medium kick into a standing light kick against a four-frame character. Then you're like, why didn't they DP there? Because they can't. Because now the gap isn't large enough that the medium DP that Sagat has can't get to the invincible frame before the stand light kick hits. But wait, it worked against Rob TV? Well, no, because that was a perfect four-frame situation that would match the four-frame buttons that would do... You know what I'm saying? It's like, it's not that this uppercut will beat this move every time you do the uppercut and it's a big risk and that's why it's hype. It's no... In this situation, you can't uppercut ever unless it's EX, but then why could he in that other one? Well, that was the four frame and the three frame and the, duh, you know, like it's, it, it requires too much knowledge to get to the hype parts of the game. That's, that's like the, that's, that's where my complaint comes from. And every time I try to explain it, I can never get it across to anybody. <laughs> I can't, I can't ever word it so that it makes sense, you know? <sighs> but but I, I understand. It, it's, a, it's such a very specific situation mm -hmm. that requires knowledge of, of both characters' kits, both characters' frame data, what their special moves properties are, and the frame data of those special moves to really understand, <laughs> hey, this is what's going on. Right. As opposed to DP's invincible, and it's really punishable if you block it. <laughs> Simple. You do it or you don't. 
and everybody can understand that everyone can get hyped by it and it just makes sense or you see a big 27 hit combo from daigo that required 24 different inputs and you get hyped by that you know it's like you've taken away all the things that people casuals get hype about now if you start designing a game specifically for spectators as opposed for the players you end up with bad games that is a hundred percent true i'm not going to debate that at all but i was about to say that's how you end up with street fighter 5 but you <laughs> say the same thing you can design a game that's hype for the viewers and hype for the players at the same time it is possible and like i said tekken 7 is a good example of that smash brothers is a good example of that because everybody who's played smash brothers know how hard it is to land jigglypuff sleep on somebody and then hungry box does it on this ridiculous combo and sleeps the guy off the stage to win to to to, to reset the bracket at evo like everybody's gonna get hyped for that you know, like, you don't, you, and, but Melee, again, is one of the hardest games to play at the highest levels. <laughs> it's like, you can do both. You can do both. And that's, that's how I feel about it. So anyways, this is supposed to be our history. And now I'm going into uncensored mode. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. It, it's related to history because it's, it's talking about how things have changed over time. Yeah, yeah. And how true. we've gone to where it's we are. True. So it's, it's still related. It's still related. Thank you, uh, thank, so thank you, Corey, for. <laughs> so, so I will say this episode, instead of being about like FGC and the community in terms of like, hey, here's how arcades work. It's just like, hey, you want to know about how games and mechanics worked back in the day? Yeah. And how <laughs> this is the mechanics episode. Here. <laughs> I, I, I thought this was a really fun episode. If you ask yeah. me, I, I'm having a lot of fun learning right now. <laughs> oh man, but yeah, it's it's a different thing, and and I do want to just you know, I'll end it with this too is that James Chen of 20 years ago would be one of the guys on Twitter yelling at James Chen of now. Like, you are wrong about this. Like, the decisions for that uppercut are so smart. Like, oh, it's hype because of this and da-da-da. But the thing about it is the older I get, my goals have not become to make a great fighting game necessarily, but to have a great fighting game that everybody loves to watch. My purpose now is to get everybody to watch and enjoy and appreciate fighting games so that guys like Justin Wong and Daigo and Sonic Fox are just heroes to people. You know, I want them to be, you want to watch them play and just assume what they're doing is godlike and amazing. They deserve to be lauded for the amount of talent and skill that they are displaying here that people don't recognize. And so because my mindset has gone that way, and you know, I, I tell the story about my friend who told me no one would play my fighting game from 20 years ago. I think about a lot of things Seth Killian has talked about. Keats was on the Tuesday show a while ago talking about how people are wrong when they, like, you shouldn't make a game that's perfectly balanced. You need to have a harmonic balanced environment as opposed to every matchup trying to be 5-5 five, five kind of thing. You know, the way that these guys are talking about, these are like game designers and they are the older crowd that are understanding what it means to make a game that appeals to people to play and also have, I mean, because KI is one of the most complicated games out there right now, but there's just a lot of things about that game that you just feel like a badass when you accomplish. You just feel good about it. You know, punching people through walls with Agonos is just an amazing feeling. If you ever pull that off, you feel like a god, you know, and, you know, listening to all these guys talk about, you know, that's where I'm at now. I'm at that point where, to me, the most important thing is making a game that is, a lot, is free enough 
that allows people to express themselves, but also has that ability to draw in viewers because spectators are always going to become future players. Always yes. going to become future players. I watched so much poker on TV and I eventually became a player of poker. I tried to learn poker because I just watched it so damn much. You know, it took maybe a year or two. Doesn't matter. That's perfect. You know, the spectators are the people who become the eventual players. The people, the millions of people watching League of Legends will eventually, if one of their friends goes, hey, you want to try League? They'll be like, okay. And if you go in there and lose your first 200 matches online, you're not going to stay playing. The number one thing I, I, I think game or fighting game designers need to keep in mind when making a fighting game, especially when you want to appeal to a wider audience, is you don't need to make things easier to do, mm. but you do need to make things easier to understand. <laughs> yes, and more fun. So the one thing they did right in Strive is that if I hit someone with a Fafner, with Soul's Fafner to the face, and I get a counter hit, and it zooms in and slows down, and then they crack the wall. Like, that shit feels good. <laughs> Even though I just hit him with a Fafner, but it feels good. You know, and, and like I said, Falcon punches, sleeps, Luigi up B, sweet spot. Like, that felt good. I mean, I used to play uh, Zelda instead of Sheik and Melee, just because I wanted to do fair or bear and get the sweet spot, which I called the shoe. Like, if you hit him at the sweet spot <laughs> and you hit him at just the right spot, you just murdered them. And that's all I tried to do with her, you know? And it just felt so good. <laughs> that's what felt so good. I, I feel like, the, 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 speaking of, like, uh, also, like, segregation in the FGC, I feel like uh, there's still a great divide between... Smash players and I guess rest of traditional FGC and I yeah. get it I understand it makes sense because mm -hmm. they're very very different but I do want people who maybe only play traditional fighting games look at say even melee and just understand like hey this game was actually really complex and this yeah. is a lot of the same things that applied to you know fighting games that came out of the dark ages of weird mechanics or weird mm -hmm. bugs that became mechanics like melee had all of that yeah it's I, I mean really interesting to understand how like how high-level melee works. Dude, I, I have talked about this many times, and I've never done the full episode because I keep threatening to do it, but I plan to do an Unchenzord to talk about why melee is the most psychologically brilliantly designed game ever. Like, one of the most psychologically brilliant designed games ever. And uh, people don't realize just how genius smash is as a game concept taking a fighting game genre and putting its own take on it so that it makes sense to casuals there's so many very subtle things they did in that game that a lot of people don't think about that made that game as excellent and i mean when smash 64 came out everybody caught that game caught on like wildfire and there's a reason for that and I'll I'll do the episode one of these days. I'll 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 do I'll do the episode at one point in time. So. I, I definitely think you should. I mean, so I I've talked to Olaf uh, uh, at 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 length about melee because I don't really know a whole lot about melee. And I once mm -hmm. again I understand there is this weird stigma within the FGC about talking about Smash or Link Smash in the conversation. Or or you can even hear it from the other side. You know, where where Smash players both do and do not want to be included with the rest of the FGC. Right. It's weird. We, we're not going to go too too heavy into that because it's its own mess but i'm just saying as a game mechanically as a game 
melee is extremely fascinating. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And and again, you know, they they didn't want it to be competitive, like people in the chat are saying. But the thing about it is, creators never get to decide whether or not their thing is competitive or not. That's what I'm going to say. The creator doesn't have that choice. The creator does have the choice of whether or not the game is going to be fun or the thing there is going to be fun, okay? Because I'm telling you right now, competitive cup stacking is a thing, okay? Nobody created solo cups and said, you know what, this isn't meant to be competitive. We don't get to choose what is competitive, okay? People <laughs> choose what is competitive and worth competing on, okay? So it doesn't matter whether Smash was designed to be competitive at all. The player, Alex Kidd was not designed to be yes. a competitive game. <laughs> but your community formed it and made it competitive, either because the game was already had competitive mechanics or you, or you made rules to make it, it doesn't matter. Exactly. It is competitive. Exactly. So, I mean, the only thing I'll ever hear anyone, I'll ever accept people crap about when it comes to Smash is going from Melee to Brawl because they yeah, intentionally yeah. made it not competitive and then mm -hmm, I felt mm -hmm. took a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. That is the only thing I'll ever say about it is, mm -hmm. yeah, that sucked. Exactly. And so that's, that's where I come from. The argument that Melee was never meant to be competitive has no bearing on whether or not it's competitive or whether or not it's a fighting game. There's no bearing on it because every game can be turned competitive in some way, shape, or form uh, if you just want it to be. We can make anything competitive. There are pizza tossing tournaments out there. There are pizza box folding tournaments speed out there. Speed eating. You, speed eating. Everything can be a tournament as long as you think you can do it better than everybody else. It becomes a competition. And that's just the, that's the long and short of it. I don't care what it is. Everything can be competitive, whether or not it was made to be competitive. So yeah, it doesn't there you matter. Go. And it, the community is what makes it, right? Mm -hmm. The community, it, it, whatever the community does with it is, is what matters. Right. And again, you know, it is a fighting game. I will 100% say that uh, Smash Brothers is a fighting game. But I'm also the person that says Virtual Lawn is a fighting game. You know? <laughs> um, I, I I just say Smash isn't a traditional, like, you know, like a, a traditional fighting game, yeah. but still a fighting game all the same. It's just people are weird. That's like, I don't know. It, it's hard to classify Smash. I mean, I want to say it is a fighting game, but the communities are so different. And I what, guess that's the weird thing. It's a feel, it feels like an offshoot because the community feels like it's right. so completely and, separate. And when I do my Uncensored episode where I tell you why Melee is so good design wise you'll understand why it's a fighting game I'll, I'll i'll present you that game exactly in the terms of how the fighting game how fighting games work and why that game works as a fighting game it's 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 brilliant it's genius it's gen it basically took everything concept of fighting games as they exist flipped it 180 and then it was the smartest decision ever Everything they did, they flipped 180, and it was the smartest decision ever. And like I said, I'll explain that once I do that episode. So now I have his. Now I have my uh, my clickbait for you guys to tune in onto that. So. <laughs> oh, I'm looking forward to it. Wow, we we covered a good amount of topics today. Yeah. I, honestly, I think this is maybe one of my favorite episodes. <laughs> cool.
Yeah, but it is seven. So it's been going for two and a half hours now. So we should Jeez. probably uh, uh, call it now. But... So let's wrap it up. Um, any any closing remarks? Anything you want to end with? Um, mostly just you know, if you guys appreciate this content and the guys appreciate just having this podcast and talk and everything like that. You know, feel free to uh, please consider subscribing, uh, gift subbing if you've already subscribed, bits, that kind of stuff, donations. And also, you know, uh, subs and donations and stuff will all go towards once the quarantine is over. I'm definitely uh, buying Corey a bunch of dinners for helping out with this stream and everything like that. So all if you guys... tenders and nuggets. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Sigma Nuts, the good eats in the chat. Uh, thank you very much for the subscription, uh, Sigma Nuts, Cat Butts, and, um, but yeah, if you guys do appreciate this, if you're watching this on YouTube, uh, definitely, you know, you can head over to twitch.tv slash jchenzor, and there will be donate links and subscription links and stuff like that down there as well, especially if you haven't used your Amazon Prime, uh, if you have Amazon Prime for free, you can sub to one channel a month, you have to resubscribe every month, but if you haven't used it, uh, consider using it for me, and as I always say, uh, even if not for me, use it for somebody, that's Jeff Bezos money, that's not being utilized to give to content creators out there please take advantage of that to make sure that people are getting their share of the amazon prime free twitch prime subscription so that uh you know because look bezos has enough money as it is already so yeah spread the love right <laughs> yeah uh, if, if you're if you're watching this on youtube you know please be sure to like comment and please uh you know subscribe we do go through the comments we do mm -hmm. read the comments. We do uh, either we'll respond to it right there or we're going to talk about it on the stream. So please leave your comments. We do read them. Sigma nuts, cat butts. Ah. <laughs> Sigma nuts, cat butts. Say bye, ja right. Jasmine's like, let go of me. Let go of me. Okay, there we go. Ah. Anyways, <laughs> thanks, guys, for tuning in. Again, follow Corey Bell on uh, Twitter at... Corey Bell FGC to see all of your favorite uh, FGC. What the hell is with the Ronald Ronaldino meme these days? I don't even know what the. I mean, it, it just came up last night. I was already making a stupid post about Sephiroth, and someone's like, "I was expecting a Ronaldino <laughs> meme," and I'm like, "I don't even know what that is. Let me go look it up." I'm like, "Okay, it's it's a, it, it, it's 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 a." Uh, it's it's what's what's it called? It's it's a type of meme. It's like Rick Rolling. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's exactly. Surprise. That's why it's funny. Uh, so I'm like, okay, I'm just gonna post Ronaldinho <laughs> memes now. I guess. Uh, Whatever. Anyways, <laughs> you can also follow me on Twitter at jchenzor as well. Also consider Patreon.com/jchenzor as an alternate way to support. That goes to my editor, uh, so uh, you can help him keep working for me and making things a little bit easier for me as well. So, all right, thanks for tuning in. Thanks again, Corey, for uh, hanging out here and, uh, you know, fielding all these questions and kind of guiding the conversation and everything. Appreciate oh, it so you. much.
thank you for having all this information and just being able to tell me about like talking to me about it because like i said i'm i'm genuinely into all of this that we're talking about. It's, it's fun it's i'm having so much fun having awesome. these conversations so thank you for having me on this show all right and and also if you're on youtube let us know who, who you'd like as a guest maybe to come on like flo and i have been talking about some stuff maybe we can bring flo on here to talk about the midwest scene a little bit get henry sen or arturo or anything we've been talking about maybe mike watson that'd be a scary idea but maybe <laughs> depends depends maybe maybe yeah. that one needs to be a record and then you broadcast later. yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> all right thanks guys for tuning in take care stay safe out there and peace out bye-bye sonic boom 